This <laughs> right here is a man that I have always quietly admired. I wanted to work with in some capacity. I just flat out aspired to be this man one day. Uh, he has been involved with Prince since 1984 and was always the man behind the curtain. I have watched his career for a very long time. He was hired by PRN Productions to provide personal security for various entertainers and clients and company executives during the Purple Rain Tour throughout the United States. He was then promoted to the director of security of PRN Productions, the parent company of Paisley Park Studios. As part of that, he was involved with film, video, music business management, music promotion, film promotion, public relations management, and entertainment development. He was then given the added responsibilities of company operations, which included film production, video production, concert touring, audio recording production, and television productions. That's not enough. Then, if that's not enough, in November of 1989, Mr. Davison was asked to assume full responsibility for all business aspects of Paisley Park Enterprises, and he was named president of the company, where he was firmly in place during some of its most profitable and successful years, and he made headlines in the music industry with what is acknowledged as the largest artist recording contract in the industry at that time. And that included the launching of Paisley Park Records, the launching of NPG Records, world concert tours, production of television programs, software entertainment, development of retail stores, theatrical productions, producing, marketing, and promotion of five Prince's out of Prince's albums, including two of his top-selling albums, Diamonds and Pearls and the Love Symbol album. And that also included the launching of various music artists on both of those labels. Then... If that ain't enough for you insatiable ingrates, <laughs> in September of 1989, he started his own entertainment company called Heaven and Earth Incorporated that launched the largest entertainment facility for nightlife in the Twin Cities, which all of you affectionately knew as Glam Slam, which was also recognized as one of the premier entertainment venues in the country. That also franchised into Yokohama, Japan, and had satellite locations in Los Angeles and Miami and uh, under the corporate structure of Paisley Park. And in 1995, the Glam Slam nightclub located in Minneapolis was reimagined by Mr. Davidson as the Quest Entertainment Venue, which operated successfully until it closed in 2006 due to a fire. Currently, Mr. Davidson, I can't, I'm still going over accolades and I'm skipping over tons of stuff. This is insane. <laughs> So much. Currently, Mr. Davison continues to work in the entertainment industry as a consultant and artist and business manager. He is also the executive director of Love for One Another Charities, continuing the legacy of philanthropy that Prince and Maite started when they created the charity in 1998. And their mission statement is helping people up and helping people out. There were only a handful of people that knew more about Prince at such a close range for such a long period of time. I could literally spend the entire show. I've already spent like five minutes reading off his accolades. So it's an incredible honor to have him on board on, on Funkatopia Live. Please, everybody welcome the one and only Gilbert Davison. <laughs> wow. Hi, guys. How you doing? You know, that uh, intro... That intro was so good. Good night, everyone. We'll just good night. And there, yeah. Let's, right, thank just, you. let's just stop right there. Um, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, yeah, you did your homework. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, obviously, but I mean, you you are you're a legend. You're especially a legend in the purple circle, 
And I, I can I, I definitely appreciate the fact that you operated all of this time, you know, in the shadows and behind the curtain. But me, along with all the other Prince fans, um, you know, I've been following Prince since 1983. 1984 was the first concert that I saw. But I kept repeatedly seeing your name like right. I was like, this guy is everywhere. He's everywhere. <laughs> He's everywhere. He's everywhere. Uh, I, I just can't say enough that, you know, it's an extreme honor to have you here. And I know so Thank much you. about you just because, again, you were everywhere. Um, you were Thank with you. him during the high points of his career from Purple Rain up until the mid-90s. And to be clear, everything I heard was from people who knew you directly. I mean, you're just always this mysterious figure behind the scenes. And, and when I was trying to prepare for the show... Um, and verify some details, I quickly realized that you just don't do interviews. No. <laughs> I, I, I only know of two. Uh, the one that uh, was combat was a combat radio one, which is very difficult to find anything outside of like a, a snippet. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, the one at Paisley Park Celebration in 2018 with Sheila E., who you mm-hmm. manage. Um, outside of that, there is little to nothing about you online. So I, I equate this opportunity right here with being touched by the Pope that you chose to come <laughs> right Funkatopia live. And I can't thank you enough for this opportunity to interview. So I, I just need to know what I did right so that I can replicate it for future guests. Like I said, I mean, you've done, you've done everything right. Um, we ended right now. Best interview I've ever done um, <laughs> out of the two. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I've kind of purposely maintained that kind of, you know, behind the scenes kind of thing. Uh, it's just kind of where I'm comfortable at. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't do it on purpose. It's just, that's just kind of where I work. That's kind of where I'm able to do my work and whatnot. And so, um, I'm, I'm not that guy that's supposed to be out front as far as I'm concerned. So mm-hmm. if you can't find me on the internet, I've done my job. Well, the fact take, is we I take some we... pride in that actually for, for this day and age, just like, uh, I was teaching, it's yeah, I was. T- I, I taught at this college for three years, and I would tell my students because they were like, "We can't find anything on you online." I'm like, "Yeah, you're not supposed to." You know that that that's part of my 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 job, my mystique, whatever. Um, so I'm glad you couldn't find stuff. So now this is just kind of like an open platform for you to let's go for it. Well, and we're I'm, honored. We're absolutely honored to have you here. Like, thank you, without Jeff. a doubt. Thank you. <laughs> So I, I know that you have print stories for days and I want to make the most of, of our time with you. So let's start at the beginning because I, I want to talk about how you even got started with Prince. I mean, how did you hear about the opportunity to come on board with the Prince camp and what was that process like? Um, it, it's kind of a long story. I'll try to shorten it up just to respect time here. But um, I had a friend that I went to college with. We played football together, Harlan Austin, who I'm sure a lot of people know goes by Hucky. Um and Huck called me one evening and asked me if I wanted to go to a Prince concert at First Avenue. And honestly, I, I, we played together. He was on defense. I was on offense. Uh, we were more acquaintances than friends. But, you know, he thought of me and gave me a call. So I went to uh, the concert with him. We were kind of getting caught up at that time. I hadn't seen him in a while. And uh, he told me that he was trying to get a job on Prince's Purple Rain Tour. And honestly, I just thought it was just a crazy idea. Um, I didn't know much about Prince of the organization or anything at that time. Uh, I was going to school for computer science. So I was just trying to be respectful, to be honest, and said, hey, that sounds fun. If something comes up, let me know. I'm thinking summer job, right? right. And um, 
that was like, I think in January. And then he calls me in March or April of that year. And, uh, and my mother answered the phone and she said, there's a Harlan Austin on the phone. And I was like, I don't know anyone named Harlan Austin because I really only knew him by Hucky. And so, you know, I just, just tell him I'm at home. Of course, as a mom will do, she's like, I'm not gonna lie for you get on the phone. And I got on the phone and he says, Gilbert Davidson, he's like, you know, you have the job. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, who is this? He's like, it's Hucky. I'm like, oh, how are you doing? He says, you got the job. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he says, well, remember when we were in the car and I told you I was going to go on the Purple Rain tour? I'm going and I got you a job on the tour as well. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, well, everyone wants to meet you. Come out to the facility. And that's kind of how it all started. So it was a summer job that turned into um, a 10-year odyssey, if you will. Wow. So when was the first point where you actually physically got to meet Prince? Was it on that first day? I think it may have been that first day. Everything went really fast. Uh, I went out. I remember going out that day, and he introduced me to Chick Hunsberry, who was director of security at that time. Um, Chick and I developed a very close relationship very fast. I mean, he's kind of like a father figure to me, to be honest. And um, so a lot of what Chick was doing, he had Hucky and I run alongside of him, kind of like his assistants in the beginning. Uh, so meeting Prince came, if not that day, of just a few days uh, later. Uh, I remember my first time meeting him, though it was kind of embarrassing. Uh, we were getting ready for the tour and Chick had these uh, security vests made for us. And were they, <laughs> they orange were, or yellow or were they just? They were purple okay. uh, with a light purple lapel. It had print security on it. Actually, I still have mine somewhere in, in all of my stuff. Nice. And it, it, I remember it had these, these black belts that were on the outside of it. So it was kind of like a purple Santa Claus outfit, if you will. And we walked into rehearsal and Prince wanted to show, you know, Prince and the band what the new security team was going to look like. And we walked in and Prince just laughed his head off. And uh, <laughs> so, so my meeting him officially was, he says, what's your name? And I told him my name. He goes, well, I don't know you very well, but do you realize how ridiculous that you look? <laughs> So that was our first meeting. Uh, <laughs> Chick, Chick got a little bit offended by that. And when Chick got offended and you didn't want to be around, so he excused himself, he excused us. We walked out. Uh, he took the, the outfits back. I, I don't know how I ended up with mine, but I did. And uh, we never wore them again, needless to say. And, uh, yeah, so. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, I that was... I was going to ask about Chick a little bit later on, but yeah, that's hilarious. Because I, yes. I know you you were security for 1984, 1985 Purple Rain Tour, also yes. security for the Parade Tour, uh, and then you got moved to head of security for the Sign of the Times Tour, uh, head of security in 1988, 89 for the Love Sexy Tour, also the new tour in 1990. So you've done a lot um, as far you know, under the security umbrella for sure. I, I, yeah, is... actually, you're a year behind. I think so. Right after the Purple Rain tour is when I was given the position of security director. So into right after Purple Rain, uh, actually after the Purple Rain tour, I'd I'd come back and with plans oh, just wow. to finish getting my degree uh, since I was only a semester or two short. And um, I got a call to you know, Prince wants to know if you want to come out and take over the whole security thing. This chick had left during that Purple Rain tour. 
And so I pretty much just took my suitcase and hopped on a plane and went to LA. And yeah, so it was pretty immediate after that tour. So that would have been 80, 85. So Chick was the head of security before you stepped into that position. Yes, he was. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, so opportunity presents itself and you just got to go with it. Right. You just have so, to go with it. I'm, I mean, after, after the, um, the lapel and the purple security, I think you deserve you know, a somewhere, little bit more. I think somewhere in the back of Prince's mind made an impression of some sort. That guy looks that's good right. in purple or something. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I think that played a role in it. For sure. Yeah. So I have to ask, what is all involved in, um, in being a bodyguard for Prince? What, what is, what's all involved in this? You I know, mean, besides the typical things, I, I, is there, extracurricular stuff that you have to deal with oh um you know it, it was it was really on, on on the professional side obviously there's an element of protection there um prince was always very much aware of putting us in situations that may have been you know dangerous he, he never put us at risk he never put himself at risk i mean there were some times where that was just unavoidable and that's what we mm -hmm. were there for um as far as how I approached it and how I approached, had my team approach it, we were PR people. We were typically the first people that fans would interact with, and we were typically the last people that the fans were going to interact with. So, you know, we had to be in our P's and Q's and best behaviors, and we were representative of him and of the company. Um, on the other side of that, you know, being that close with him, spending that much time with him, and I would say this was true for everyone that did the personal security there was just that element of connecting with him on a personal level um you know and you would have those conversations that weren't you know just surrounded by the concert or the album or recording you're just kind of there as a trusted friend if, if you will um you know and, and for some it was a little bit deeper than others uh but there was definitely definitely a personal connection there uh, things to do uh, in being a Prince security on the unofficial side, um, making sure that the rear door was open to any movie theater that he wanted to walk in, because the guy loved going to the movies, um, but he never walked through the front door. He'd always have to go to the how, back. How do you arrange that? Do you just go, you go into a movie theater and you say, look, Prince is waiting out back. He wants to come into the back door. How <laughs> the conversations that you had to have with management or owners of different businesses, those, those were... They were funny and it was really just how you were going to approach them because of course, you know, initially somebody knocks on your back door, you go to the front door, say, hey, we got to use your back door. I have prints outside. They're going to like, sure you do. Right. Sure. So it was <laughs> right. So it was typically how you approach them. Um, it, and that was one of the, the reasons. Um, and, and I don't want to get ahead of the conversation. Uh, after we filmed under the cherry moon, um, we, we all ended up in suits and there's a story behind that. But when the attire changed, when I realized that, you know, we can't run around in, in T-shirts and, and jeans and, you know, mm -hmm. looking like bouncers as opposed to professional security. When that happened, things got a lot easier as far as getting what you needed from different business owners and whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. So it wasn't as hard as one would think, but you had, there was tact to it. You had to have tact to do it. Oh, yeah. I so imagine. with that. Okay. No, go ahead. Yeah. So. Uh, on your security team, how many people did you actually manage? How many were, were your team? Uh, it depended on what we were going to do. Um, if we were touring, we would have ooh, maybe 
five on the personal side, um, typically three mains. Um, in Harlan Austin for, ooh, I think up to 90, 91. Um, during that, that period after, he was kind of my second. I mean, depended on Huck for just about everything. If I wasn't there one-on-one -on -one with Princeton, Huck, he typically was. And when we went on tour, we would split that team up and you would have uh, security on the band and then I would would be with Prince and usually it was Hucky and I that were with Prince during those tours. Um, so it, it just really depended on what we were doing. If we were doing a, a, um, a award show, I would bring on some execute security there. Um, and then as I stopped back for a minute and then Hucky took over for a certain number of years and then he put together his own team. So, mm -hmm. you know, that could fluctuate. If if we were one on one, there were two of us. If we were on tour, it could be up to seven, eight, nine, ten. You know, I, I've heard stories uh, about famous people. I, yeah, I guess when you get to a certain level of fame, people try to get to you. And I've heard, you know, there's lots of stories of famous people who tried to get to him and you know were turned away for a variety of reasons. Um, <clears throat> in Matt Thorne's book, I'm trying to remember the name of that book, but in Matt Thorne's book, he's telling the story about Tracy Morgan who was at a party at Paisley park and he refused to leave until Prince came down and shook his hand. People feel, I guess people that felt like they kind of had a right to get backstage to see him or, or, or do whatever. Can you name, or can you think of anything, a funny memory of like somebody who was a celebrity or star that did this to you while you were trying to be a bodyguard for him? Ooh, um, we, during my time, I mean, we wouldn't, I, I don't really remember him purposely trying to avoid anyone, but at the same time, he didn't put himself, you know, in those places where anyone can just walk up to him. That's just not what we did. So let's say we went to a party or at an event. Prince would have an area that he would go to that was, you know, predetermined. This is his booth or this is his seating area. And we would stay in that area. Very rarely would he be walking around mingling amongst everyone. Now at Paisley, that was home. So, you know, it was a little bit more open. But even then, you know, if it got too crowded or it was just too many people that wanted to meet him and whatnot, he'd find a way to retreat and, and, and hold back. Um, ah, gosh, with that said, no. I mean, Sigourney Weaver, maybe. But that what was with her. <laughs> well, we were, we were, we had just checked into the Four Seasons and she was staying on the same floor. And uh, we had just, he had just went into his room. I was just leaving his room and she walked up. And at first I didn't recognize her. And then when I did, she said, Oh, it's Prince there. You know, you know, I, I'd really like to say hi to him. And, but we had just gotten there. So I said, You know, I'll get his room number and, um, you know, we'll give you a call later or something like that. And when I told him, it just kind of went past him where it wasn't like, oh, you know, yeah, I want to talk to Sigourney Weaver. It was just more like, oh, okay, you know, and we just never reached back out. So um, it wasn't mm -hmm. being on a disrespect or anything like that. It was just uh, just not the frame of mind that he was in. We probably recording back then. And when he was in that frame of mind, it was just about the music and, you know, getting those things done. Yeah. And I, I meant to go a little bit off track too, because um, I was talking to Dwayne Tudal and he said, he did ask the question, he was like, you know, Gilbert was around him quite a bit. Did you, have you ever seen him turn off? Like not being involved in writing or recording or doing music. And I mean, I, you did mention him going to see movies, but I mean, outside of that, 
is there anything that you can recall that, you know, was at least a tad bit normal <laughs> that it, because it seemed like he was always writing, always in the studio, always recording, always involved in music or playing or doing whatever. It, did he ever take a, a regular opportunity to just turn off? Be human. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Prince was human. Um, <laughs> I, music I, was his life. I mean, yeah. you know, people say that and, and, you know, but music was his life. It's what he did. It's what he loved to do. Um, what most people would call work being in the studio for hours and hours, yeah. he just called a day, you know, that what else would you do as far as he was concerned? But, um, he was a great pool player and we would play pool for hours. You know, he loved playing basketball. Everyone knows that. And he was great at playing basketball. He would take time to go, you know, see movies. Um, sometimes we would just, you know, travel to New York and Paris. He loved Paris uh, and just to go to clubs and hang out. Um, you know, that kind of thing, but even there, and, and I think in almost all those situations, in some way, shape or form, he was absorbing what was happening around him and it would turn into a song anyway. So maybe the answer <laughs> to that question is no, he never shut off because you just never knew what was going to come up, you know, in a song later on where he's singing about some innocuous thing that happened, you know, while you were out with right. him. Whatnot, so. And, and speaking of, of basketball, um, <laughs> I, I, I do have a question because a lot of people don't know this, but the whole skit with Charlie Murphy uh, and that was reenacted by Dave Chappelle. You were there. You were in this game. I was in that game. Yes. Yeah. Whose team yeah. were you on? Were you, <laughs> were you on Prince's I, side? I was team Prince. So we, you were, we were, we were, we were actually had a shirts or blouses. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was, I was team blouses, I guess. Um, but no, we weren't, we weren't wearing blouses. We were at a, a club in, in LA, I think it was called Tramps, which was uh, in the Beverly Center. And uh, we would, it's a club, it was a private club that we would frequent, Eddie would frequent. And uh, we were both there that on the same night and Prince invited him back to the house to play basketball. And, you know, it turned into that. I, I honestly, you know, it, I was shocked that Charlie had brought it up as a story, but I loved the story Charlie told. And it was hilarious. And, you know, a lot of times when you're in a situation, you don't, you don't really appreciate or realize what's going on here. I mean, you know, I'm playing basketball with Prince and Eddie Murphy and here's this thing going on. And the way Charlie was able to, to tell that story, I, it was, it was hilarious. I laughed my head off. I was shocked that he was like, Oh, that's the story. But uh, yep, that, that happened. It, it really happened. And uh, I heard there was pieces that Eddie Murphy was trying to to get Prince to listen to his music during that basketball. Yeah, okay. I, I wasn't going to bring that up. So here, so yeah, there's there's the part <laughs> that was was left out of that story. I and I appreciate it. But I'm I'm going to give me a, I'm going I'm going to follow it up with a, a comment after. Okay. So Eddie had his next album that he wanted Prince to hear. So while the game was happening, we had a boombox out there and the, and the tape was playing. After we beat them in that game, Prince went over and popped the cassette out. I remember him throwing it in the woods, but he definitely popped it out and was just kind of like <laughs> tossed it. And, you know, of course, there's this, oh, my God moment. Like, <laughs> oh, man. You know, but he asked Eddie a question. He said, do you see me stopping my shows to do comedy? <laughs> and he said, no. <laughs> And then Prince was like, well, what makes you think you could stop yours to do music? 
And, <laughs> you know, if, if you took it on the face of things, it was very offensive for him to say that. Eddie could have obviously come back and said, well, what makes you think you can do movies because you're going into acting or whatever. <laughs> right. However, Prince being Prince, what he really meant, and I think really what it was about, I know what it was about, he thought Eddie Murphy was the funniest comedian on earth at that time. He loved Eddie's comedy. He would often emulate uh, Eddie's, you know, uh, act or whatever and speak in that vernacular and whatnot. Um, so it was really out of, he had so much respect for him that he was kind of questioning, like, why are you trying to do this? Because you're never going to be as be better than me at this. And if you're not going to be better than me, if there's not even a chance of you being better at me, then you should just, you know, stay in that lane and, and be the best you that you are right now. Um, so it's really out of respect. I, I, we never, I, I, well, during my time there, we really never reconnected with, with that group again. Uh, I understand they did later, so there was no hard feelings going forward um, from what I understand. But yeah, that was that was the basketball game. And yes, at the end, did go in and have pancakes. <laughs> that was true. Absolutely. True. I went to my room. I was done. I mean, this game took place at two or three o'clock in the morning. Maybe it's three or four o'clock in the morning. Uh, so yeah, so pancakes were, were appropriate for the time of day. It was breakfast, but yeah, that's what we were doing. I'm so, sure losing for them losing that game hurt the most. <laughs> we we put a hurt them on that game. It wasn't even close. It wasn't even close. That's that's funny. Uh, yeah. you know, I mean, looking back at you know, obviously you, you've done a lot of things right, but can you can I, there's got to be something that may have happened as you were a bodyguard for him and working for him in this capacity where you made a really really big mistake. Can you can you remember any? Time that the, yeah. a big lesson learned you know the one that stands out and yeah and this really it was it was the only saving grace what the story i'm about to tell was i think he knew me well enough to know what had happened um, but we were in japan and at the end of the tour the promoter gave a gift um which was typical and he gave prince a gold rolex watch wow nice. and i took the the watch the prince and said, you know, the promoter gave you this watch and um, he says, I don't want it. You know, I was like, well, you know, it's a gift. It's customary. He's like, I, I don't want it. You know, he already paid me for the show. He doesn't need to give me a gift and he just felt uncomfortable with it. So I took the watch and I gave it back to the promoter, you know, I thanked him for it. It's not necessary to give a gift and, you know, here you go. Well, I don't know, 30 minutes later or so, I get a call from management and they were like, what did you do? You know, what are you talking about? So the promoter's in the lobby. He's, you know, just distraught. He's crying and he doesn't understand what happened. There was someone of a language barrier there. Um, and I said, well, you know, he gave Prince a watch. He gave us all gifts, but he gave Prince a watch. I gave it back. Prince doesn't want it. And, you know, it's like, you can't, you can't do that. Um, you know, it's offensive to the culture and, and whatnot. You have to accept it. And um, so in talking to management, they were just like, well, just, get it and we'll get it back home and then we'll send it to them with a, a note of understanding that, you know, it wasn't necessary. So I have the watch and, uh, but Prince doesn't know I have the watch because we're just going to send the watch back. Well, as we're flying in, you know, of course the announcement comes for customs and you have to pay taxes on <sighs> gifts and whatnot. And here I'm sitting with this gold Rolex watch <laughs> that he doesn't want anyway. And I'm like, okay, so now he's going to end up paying taxes on a watch that he said he didn't want. And, you know, so again, I go to the authority on the plane, I'm not naming names. 
And they were just like, well, just have one of your guys wear the watch in because we're going to send it back anyway. So don't claim it in customs. So I, I, I asked my team and the, the kid that I asked it, it, later on, I was really like, man, you know, because you're trying to react to the situation that you're in. I'm with friends. And so I have my team. And unfortunately, the guy that I asked to wear the watch in, who agreed to wear a watch in, he was wanted to become a police officer. So, I mean, doing something that violates federal law, basically, oh, is not, oh, you know, right. ideal. Oh, ideal. <laughs> right? So, you know, and we have this box. It's this big Rolex watch box. So the box comes in. No, the watch comes in just fine. What Customs found was the box. So I'm sitting with, we're through Customs. I'm sitting with Prince. In, in the lobby, waiting for our, our flight uh, back home. Uh, we're in New York, I guess. And um, here the custom agents come with the security guy that was carrying the box. And the agents looked at me and said, where's the watch? And by that time, they had given it back to me. So I said, it's right here. And I was just, I was pissed. I was pissed because I'm in this situation. My team's in this situation. And the authorities that said, hey, just wear it in, they're nowhere to be found, of course. Like, well, we don't know anything about it. And um, so, you know, we, we paid the taxes. I explained to the security. And again, it's how you're handling yourself. I explained to the customs agents what happened, why this happened this way. It's like, okay, you can't do that. So we paid the taxes. We're all in the place. How much were the taxes? Uh, I don't know. It was four or $5,000, $6,000. Oh. It was a gold Rolex watch. It's gold Rolex, right? <laughs> yeah, gold Rolex. Oh and uh, so, when I get on the plane, because I'm I'm the one that's stuck here, and when I get on the plane, you know, Prince is looking at me, and he looks at me, and I think he asked me something like, "So, what are we going to do with the watch?" And I was like, "Don't even." I was like, "Don't tell me. Talk to me about the watch." And then, again, that was the relationship that we had. Because, you know, he knew, I was like, your people told me to carry this in, so I don't even want to talk about it. And he never brought it up again. And uh, so the, the watch ended up with the accountant. Um, and years later, when that accountant left the company, he called me and he asked me, you know, hey, Gilbert, I still have this watch in the safe. What should I do with it? And I said, I don't care what you do with it. It's just keep it, give it away, whatever you're going to do with it. So I have no idea what happened to the Rolex watch. It's somewhere floating out there in in the uh, in the ethos, and I hope I never see it again. <laughs> so yeah, that's so a that, story that we'll was, never. Yeah, it, but you know, it, it really it really taught me a, a valuable lesson about you know the relationship that I had with him, and uh, it definitely made me cognizant to not to violate the trust that he had, had put in me, and I think that that definitely played a role going forward with the work that I did with them and you know, becoming president of the company later on in management. It's just being upfront and being honest. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think when that happened, I was 22 or 23. So valuable lesson to learn at a young age. You held it together well for me. I, I can't, I don't know how I would have handled it because when I was 22 or 23, I was like, it's a ridiculously stupid. Thing. <laughs> uh, well, Man. that's, that's crazy. Um, yeah. All right. So, in the beginning of the show, uh, we obviously spoke about uh, the passing of uh, our friend Wally Safford. How close were you to Wally? We were we were very close. Actually, when I just made reference to after the Purple Rain tour is when I became security director, Wally went with me. 
So it was Wally and I that were in Los Angeles with Prince before we went for the filming of of uh, Under the Cherry Moon. Uh, Wally was my second um, in Los Angeles. And he had had, obviously, uh, a history with Prince prior to, to me. They had been on tour. And I do just want to take the time to give my condolences also to the whole Detroit family. You know, there's a, there's a Paisley Park Purple family there in Detroit, Mitch. Uh, Dewey and Noor, the Muhammad brothers, Billy Sparks, Quentin Perry, um, just a, a, another cast of people that, you know, I'm sure are just as affected, if not more so than we all are. Uh, we love you guys. We miss you guys. Uh, we give Wally's family the best and whatnot. And so I want to acknowledge that. But Wally was just, um, he was a great guy. And, you know, when, when we came in with the new team, Hucky and I and, and some other people that Chick had brought in, Wally and, and the guys out of Detroit, they had pretty much done the job that we were now assigned to do. So we were this new team and there was this, not conflict, but like, okay, where do they fit in and where do we fit in? But, you know, after the tour started and, and, and some of those differences were settled and whatnot, we were all just kind of brothers and, you know, getting the job done. And there was so much to do on that Purple Rain tour in particular that, you know, there was a certain closeness there. And then later on, when um, he became part of the band, and actually that started because they were on stage security, which a lot of people didn't realize. That's what they were doing on stage originally. I mean, I wasn't going to go up. I have two left feet, so it wasn't going to be me. Uh, but it was uh, Wally and, and Brooks on stage um, as Prince was kind of opening up the show and inviting people on stage. I, I knew that. I, I yeah. knew that they were called the dancing bodyguards or whatever, or whatever, whatever they were referring to them as. But I didn't. I, and I only thought that they were given that title because of the fact that they were bodyguards and now they were dancing, but no, you know, they were, they were up there for a active, reason. Actively guarding him. Wow. On well, yeah, I, I remember <laughs> at the, at, at the end of the purple rain, we would do baby. I'm a star. And as that show developed and really just to make it more interesting and to open it up to the fans, they were starting to invite people on stage. And now you had the crowd on stage and they were doing this whole thing. Mm. And, um, you know, it was, where do you put security? And so as, as we went on and Prince kind of liked the idea of inviting people on stage, okay, what do you do? And um, so dancing security. Huh. Uh, Andre asked, do you know where he got his sunglasses? Actually, <laughs> Wally's been on the show a few times and he's actually, uh, he told me that he got his glasses at Target. <laughs> it wasn't any place fancy it was like he said yeah i think i got him at like target or and he was he was probably telling you the truth yeah, you wally are. had so many one-liners he's one of the funniest <laughs> people i've ever met in my life I, and you know i the last time i saw him i, I asked uh you know how someone was doing and I'm not even going to say what he said, but it, I, it, I had to sit down. I was laughing so hard because he said it just like that, just like oh, da, 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 and I had to sit and just laugh. It, it was just that funny. But yeah, he was he was just a great guy. So in Wally's book, um, which I actually have the the Kindle version, I, I need to get a physical version, but I Kindle version. But he, he told a story in his book about you and him hanging out in a club. And this may have been what preceded the basketball game. I don't know, but I don't think so. But Prince and Eddie Murphy are sitting in a VIP area and Prince was kind of peacocking a little bit and showed Eddie a wad of cash. It was like a thousand dollars or more. And it was like in, it was in a money clip and Eddie snatched the money clip and just 
walks out, leaves the club. And, and while he said he was in the, he was in the bathroom, while he comes back from the bathroom, sees the look on Prince's face, and Prince said, "Can't believe he just took my money." <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't. He didn't tell Wally to get the money back. He didn't say go get money back from Eddie. He just sat there dumbfounded. Now he said, "You were, were you there during this whole thing?" Wally said he was in the bathroom. Where were you? <laughs> it, I wouldn't doubt that that happened. I wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't doubt that that happened. Um, that would have probably been at Trance. That that would have been at the same club. Yeah, and that would have happened. Shortly after the, uh, you know, after the Purple Rain tour, so yeah, that's where we were hanging out, and yeah, I yeah. wouldn't doubt it. Um, wouldn't doubt it. And there was another story that he said because I I wanted to find some stories that Wally had specifically mentioned you, and he said it was another story where, um, I want to say you guys were in Paris, and it was the two of you, and all of you got to Prince's room, and you guys found a note from a maid that Prince thought was a suicide note. It said something like, I'm sorry, but it's once in a lifetime. I had to do it. Do, do you remember this? No. Was, was it in, was it in? It, well, he said I it was, a, the, the story goes is that there was, you guys got to Prince's room and there was a note from the maid. And it, again, it said, I'm sorry, but it's once in a lifetime. I had to do it. And uh, Wally said that both Prince and you, thought that it was a suicide note and you guys started or Prince started freaking out and Wally had realized that all the note was saying was that she had stolen a pair of his boots. Uh -oh. And Prince was like, oh, that's all? I thought she died somewhere up in here. <laughs> Again, I, I will not say that that didn't happen. I, I don't remember that. It definitely could have happened. You know, I, I think for me, um, there were a lot of things that I just compartmentalized and, you know, my focus was on him and some of the other things that were happening. If I didn't have to deal with it at that time, uh, I just kind of brushed it aside. Like you guys deal with it because people will come to me and, and different people that I've worked with. You remember this time when this happened, you remember that time when that happened? And I'm like, no. And you know, here's all this stuff that was going on. And I was like, yeah, if, if I didn't have to, if I didn't have to fix it, I didn't have to be in the middle of it. I'm good. So I had enough to do. Wally was one of these rare individuals that remembers everything. He, he could remember dates and times and, oh, yeah, it was like September 12th, 1986. And we were at such and such. And we had a white Chevrolet. And it was 730. Like, How are you? Five. It was 730. <laughs> it was dusk. Uh, it was like, how do you remember this? Because Wally was a storyteller, and I think that all of his experience, oh, he would he would know that he was going to put that into telling the tale later on. So, yeah, I, I would say, you know, he was very good at, at uh, recognizing certain little details and stuff and, you know, being able to recall those to paint the picture of, of, of what happened. Um, and uh, by the way, I have to say, the fact that you found that video footage of Hard Life, <laughs> I've never seen it before. I'll, I'll I got so I was like watching that, you know, like that's actually out there. Um, I thought was that the whole piece or is that the only cut no, that was there, available? It's a 15 minute horrible movie, uh, that is just filled with the worst acting. I, I don't, 
That was a Saturday. It, it was a Saturday. It was a Saturday. And it was a Sunday. Yeah. And, you know, like there Sunday. was no movie. There was no script. I mean, there was no plan to film a movie. Prince just had it in his head to say, hey, let's do a movie. And so uh-huh. I was like, yeah, let's do a movie. So he just started filming this movie. And a lot of that, I, if I remember correctly, was just kind of made up as it was, was as we went along. Um, with Wally and Brooks, you know, coming up with a lot of the different uh, skits and, and stuff that was going on in that, that movie. Because they were just funny. I mean, they oh, yeah. were just that funny. So, yeah, so it was just uh, what we did on the weekend kind of thing. Oh, my gosh. So, and I was looking at this. Uh, matter of fact, there's, a, there's Wally mm-hmm. doing his thing. This is when uh, they had moved from, I guess, at this point, he's moving, he'd moved from on stage bodyguard are you guys are you happy for him i, I know that uh, you don't you don't appear to be a kind of person that that kind of when something good happens to somebody that you're like jealous or or anything were you were you like happy for him or oh yeah i mean you know the fact that um i mean first of all prince prince didn't do it as a favor to them but at the same time you know he was finding a place for them to play a role in what he was doing and Prince was always very good at, at recognizing, you know, that, that, that unheralded talent that someone might have. He would see it, even if they didn't. And he would give them the opportunity to, you know, use it. And I think he saw that in Wally and Brooks. You know, they, they could play these characters. And so he put them on stage. That's from Sign of the Times. And, um, you know, and they did their thing. And, and they, they, were, they were great at it, um, you know, along with Jerome. Um, it it kind of even that thing out and uh you know they were helped helping to move the show and you know uh kind of convey the message of of the chaos that was sign of the time so i mean really so much talent crazy stuff all around pretty much everybody around the prince camp was an entertainer be it a musician a singer a dancer you know something there was always something even if that wasn't their role so i have to ask you mm-hmm. and and you can tell us or not, but you claim to have two left feet. But deep down inside, were you a closet dancer too? Uh, no, I have two left feet. Um, okay. You know, you know, <laughs> you know. I think it. I think it really. I think it really comes down to my family. My my brother tells me he had asked a cousin of ours. He's like, he never seen any of the Davidsons dancing, and the cousin answers like, "Yeah, Davidsons don't shake that booty." Like we don't, we don't do that. So I, I guess it's a hereditary deficiency. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really a dancer. Uh, even later on, we can talk about it, you know, with the club, I, I don't really drink and I don't dance and I own a nightclub. Totally made no right. sense whatsoever. So you know what the follow-up is, right? Go ahead. What, what is the other talent? What is it? You, you, you got something in there that you're hiding. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. We have to. I'm, I'm still on that uh, that search. Maybe at the end of this, you guys can tell me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're gonna find yourself. <laughs> I'm gonna find myself exactly. And, uh, and and one more time, going back to Wally. I mean, he has told the story a few times about having to get physical with photographers and and even overzealous fans and whatnot. And of course, the most famous is which um, was epitomized in, in songs. Um, Smile for the camera, eh? That's right, you're a star. Um, uh, Carlos and Charlie's after uh, We Are the World thing. Yeah, so obviously that's when that photographer met his fate in some nearby bushes. 
courtesy of Wally. When you're doing that role, when you're in the role of security, what, what was the most physical that you ever had to get with someone trying to get to France? Um, so we'll have to rewind back to the beginning. I think that this definitely played a role um, in my connection with him. And, and let me just say, you know, I, I was always a proponent of, of not being physical. We weren't bouncers. We were PR people. And, you know, a, a fan trying to get close, you know, trying to get an autograph, trying to get a picture. I mean, that's that's not something you punish someone for. You thank them for that. Even if it's, you know, just in, not a good time to do it, you explain it that way. But it's never about being rude. It's never about, you know, uh, being intimidating and things like that. Um, but during that initial period when Hucky and I were uh, – assigned to Prince and we were trying to give Chick some time off. So this happened in Minneapolis. And one night we went to First Avenue and Chick had the night off. It was just Hucky and I. And um, I'll try to shorten up the story a little bit. This guy was knocking at the door. Prince was in his private area and there was a door that was on the balcony and overlooking the stage. And um, this guy's knocking at the door. You know, Hucky answers it, says, oh, you know, I want to talk to Prince. And we explained to him, Hucky explained to him, you know, he's just resting tonight. You know, he's not, you know, seeing anyone closes the door. Another knock on the door, you know, and this guy's very persistent and, you know, I want to talk to him right now, you know, let me in and, you know, Huck's like, can't do that. Um, knocks again, Hucky steps outside, but then he steps right back inside and he says to me, you know, can you, can you take care of this guy outside? Like, can you talk to this guy outside? And I was new, I mean, you know, and young and, and very reactive to, uh, given situations. Um, I'd been somewhat used to being put in situations where you had to be physical, you know, if necessary. And so I stepped outside and then, you know, I just explained to this guy, it's like, you know, he's not seen anyone. And I rolled my hand and he slapped my hand and, you know, job be damned or whatever. <laughs> we just started fighting. Um, <laughs> so I had this guy against the wall and, you know, I'm just going away at him on this wall and, you know, security comes up and they pull the guy out and I'm thinking, okay, I'm fired because this isn't what you do. So I went back in, my shirt was torn and Hucky's like, what happened? And I was like, well, and like, I'm like, this is one of my, my first outing. And I said, well, the guy hit my hand. So I, I beat him up and chicks and Hucky's like, well, where's he now? I, said, I don't know. Security took him and chick, we didn't have cell phones back then. Hucky runs downstairs. He calls Chick. Well, Chick says, you got to get Prince out of there because you don't know what this guy's going to come back, which, which he was right. And um, Prince was always very good at taking orders from us. If we needed him to go left, he went left, right, whatever. So Hucky says, we got to go. And walking out, I'm trying to hide my shirt. Just nothing happened. And we walk outside and there are police and there's an ambulance and it was just kind of like, oh. So we're walking Prince to his car past all this chaos. And he realizes something happened. Like, this is why I'm leaving. And um, so he asked Huck. He's like, you know, what happened? And Hucky told him what I told him. So, well, the guy wanted to get in and see you. And uh, he hit Gilbert's hand and Gilbert beat him up. <laughs> something like that. And we're walking down, down the street. We're on the sidewalk. And all this stuff is kind of behind us. Well, Prince looks at me, he goes, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. At this time, I'm just like, I'm fine. 
and I was, I mean, there was, there was no problem. And, uh, and he looks at me, he says, that guy pulled a gun on me at a, at a house party a year ago. Oh, what? Yeah. Yeah. He said that guy had pulled a gun on me at a house party a year ago. So this guy was trying to get back into the club, maybe to finish what he started before, probably? That guy was definitely in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that incident, I think, definitely made Prince comfortable with me. I think it definitely made him comfortable with me and Huck. It wasn't, you know, any knock against Chick or anything like that. But before that, you know, Chick had to be everywhere. To, to mm-hmm. make sure Prince was comfortable. But I think after that incident, um, he knew that he was going to be taken care of. And he was. Yeah. Wow. I could, there's a little picture of Prince and Chick there. And Chick, yeah. When he, when he wasn't all gray. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you like the gray. Chick, Chick kind of felt that the whole gray thing was, you know, was Moses' look. So he was good. Yeah. He, he did totally a good job good. with it. <laughs> Yeah. So with so many people involved, you know, in the mischievous little things that might have happened, you know, things happen here and there security wise. And even with the people you're trying to protect and cover, say that, Mm -hmm. Um, who was, as I say, who was the easiest to work with? Like who made your job easy? Oh, um, I don't think, I, I think Wendy and Lisa were, they were good. I mean, that's who I was assigned to when we were on the Purple Rain tour. So when we went on the Purple Rain tour, we got split up. Uh, Chick took care of Prince, and he had um, his assistants there. Hucky took care of the boys, um, Matt and Bobby and Mark. And I had the girls, Wendy and Lisa. Um, Wendy and Lisa were always a pleasure to work with, uh, just really just sweethearts and whatnot. And they were the easiest, actually, because once we did the show, when the show was over, they had no interest of going out to the club and hanging out. So, like, we're in for the night. And so, you know, <laughs> job's done. So, yeah, I think that they were that they were the easiest. Um, yeah, they, they were the easiest to work with, for sure. Was there anyone that you would call the most difficult? Or, I mean, outside of just, you know, moments of difficult, was there anyone consistently like, here we go? No, I, to be honest, yeah. I wouldn't have put up with it to be, to be honest. I'm not, you know, and, and you know, and, and I must say that, you know, in that circle, there was one, there was one captain, there was one general that you were protecting. And, you know, it's like, if, if we're good enough to do that job for him, there was nobody else that could come along and ask us to do more than that. And, you know, I, I will also add that, you know, Prince was very, I think protective of, of, of us. I know, um, you know, when I took over that that job, that's director of security job, it was kind of like, I don't know if you said it straight out, but whatever I wanted, I I just asked for. It was like, if I get it, he gets it, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the lifestyle that he had, in a way, I had as well. You know, you get done with your tour, and his chef was my chef, <laughs> so. You know, I had my meals made and things like that. I could do that kind of thing. And um, so, yeah, I was very fortunate uh, to have the experiences that I did at such a young age um, and for many years. Dave asked, did you ever have to tell Prince no? There's a whole list of no's that I had to tell Prince. <laughs> um, I bet, I bet. 
I guess, you know, I, I'd have to say, you know, at, at what period, because my my job in my relationship, everything changed uh, in 1990 when I took over the company. And I would characterize that beginning is, you know, I went from being the guy that helped to support him and doing what he wanted to do and go where he wanted to go to being the guy that told him no. So mm. to answer that question, yeah, that, that was a big part of our relationship was the guy to tell him no. Yeah, because I definitely want to fast forward to talk about Paisley Park because I want to move away from the bodyguard stuff and talk about being director of Paisley Park. And let's yes. we'll start here for a second because a lot of people, first off, that seems to me like the echelon of positions. That's like the pinnacle. Yes. I, I mean, I, but to start, a lot of people said Prince was crazy for building that facility and and you were right there front and center when it started and you know started coming to fruition i imagine mm -hmm. and i'm not sure what your position was i guess specifically in 1986 when it opened its doors but do you remember the initial chatter around around this facility i mean were people you know muttering he's touched <laughs> or, oh you know? no no i think everybody on the team was very supportive and excited you know um of what he wanted to do. I don't think everyone quite understood what Paisley Park was actually going to be. And if you, if you go back to um, the hard life snippet that you had, mm -hmm. the building that everyone's coming out of where that was filmed, that, that was Paisley Park before there was a Paisley Park. That was the warehouse. That's where the, the uh, rehearsals were happening and everything else. So to go from that space, which was just a rented warehouse and flying up a flying cow drive here in Eden Prairie to go from there to that facility. Um, you know, we respected the the vision that he had. And when Paisley opened, um, you know, there was a great team of people there that that brought that to fruition. You know, it was Prince's vision, but it took a team of, of people to to make it work. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the studios, uh, those were designed and, and, you know, put together. I think Sal Greco was the name. Um, Paisley fans would know. Um, Harry Grossman uh, was the mm -hmm. facility administrator back then. And I mean, he just understood what it took to run a facility like that. Um, having the studios and stuff, a place to call home, a place to call our own. Um, you know, Paisley did what Prince had envisioned it being able to do. How do you move? What, what were the steps or what, I guess, what were the chain of events that moved you from head of security to president of Paisley Park. <laughs> well, you know, so no. when I talk about this, the director of security position, you know, I always kind of identify that for, for really being a, a year where I was, you know, that's what I did. But because our relationship developed in the way that it did, um, just the connectivity that we had, I, I kind of like to throw in, like, you know, I was also the liaison. Was, okay, what does that mean? So if Prince had a meeting, I would go to that meeting. If someone needed to speak with him or they, you know, had some type of thing that they needed to address, a lot of times that would come to me, you know, and he would tell people, we'll talk to Gilbert. And then, you know, I would, this is what's going on. And, um, you know, I would be the one to bring that back to him. And, you know, many times he would say, well, what do you think we should do? And, you know, I would do it. One tidbit is, you know, he asked me to become manager in 1988, 89. Um, this was just be 
before or shortly after Cavallo Ruffalo um, departed from management. And so he had offered me the job then, but I said no. Um, There were certain things I knew that I knew, and there were certain things that I knew that I didn't know. And and I've always, you know, taught and, you know, tell people it's important to know what you don't know. So you can learn it, you know, so you can find out and ask the questions that you need it. And, um, and I didn't know a lot about the music side as far as radio promotion and just all that stuff going forward. So there were some things I, I wanted to, to fill in. I also, um, you know, kind of had my own aspirations. Remember, <laughs> going back to this, this was a summer job for me. You know, I, I, I had no aspirations to go into the music business and, you know, um, didn't know that this is where this road was going to take me. So, um, and I remember him asking me as well, this was probably, yeah, it's around the same year. He's like, what do you want to do? Because I know you don't want to follow me around for the rest of your life. And I told him I wanted to build a nightclub because we had spent so many nights, days, hours in all these different clubs from around the world. And, you know, no slight against First Avenue, but I didn't feel that Minneapolis really had a music focal point, you know, something that really represented the Minneapolis sound and definitely not something that was, um, you know, directly connected to what Prince and, and the whole Paisley thing had had, had done, had created. Um, you know, you through first, I just felt he was part of a, a bigger thing. I mean, there were legends and so many bands came through First Avenue. He was just one of those, but having your own thing. So I, I told that idea to him and he just said, you know, you should do it. And, you know, if you do it, I'll help you out, you know, as I can. And um, so I, I started looking. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of Eric Turk, actually, that was helping me, you know, locate a spot. And um, just certain things just didn't work out. It wasn't coming to pass. And one night he was playing, we were playing uh, the fine line. And the stage there is low. And he called me up to the stage as the band's playing. And, you know, so I walk up to the stage and he looks at me as the band's doing something, I don't know, playing a solo or something. And he looks at me, he says, what am I doing playing here? And he, he used some choice words at the same time. <laughs> he can definitely uh, be a person that could, you know, he knew how to motivate people. Let's put it that way. But he says, what am I, you know, and he says, if you don't build a club, I'm going to build a club. So, um, I got, I got upset, you know, I got mad, I was challenged, but he was right. And from that conversation, um, there was a, one of the owners of, of the fine line, he brought her outside and said, help him, you know, put a club together. And so she, we were on tour, I think. And so she went out and researched and found the place and that's, it ended up becoming, becoming the club. When the club was built, I'm sorry, this has gotten long. No, it's just fantastic. All right. So when we were, the club was built and, um, you know, we're just going through different things. And like I said, I mean, a relationship was, was close and kind of what, what he had was mine and what I had was, was his in a sense. So I was building the club that he felt like, Hey, we're going to have, we're going to have a club. Um, he didn't put any money into the club or anything like that. What he did do for me, and, and I think that a lot of people, I mean, realize it, but for me and for a lot of people that I know, he was very generous. You know, he would help. If, if you needed 
something, Prince was there for you. And uh, he didn't give me money. Well, what he did is he guaranteed a loan for me to, to, to get the project started. Nice. And um, didn't have to do that. I mean, definitely left the company exposed. Uh, he had a really good team of, of managers at the time, particularly his business manager at that time. She's like, you're effing crazy if you think I'm going to put you know millions of dollars in the club. you got to figure this out. And so I figured the rest of it out. And uh, and so I was leaving Paisley Park um, in, in 1990. And uh, that was going to be my departure. And I was going to be a nightclub owner. And uh, I was approached not by Prince. I was approached by his business manager and his attorney. And um, things weren't going well, just to be frank. I mean, you know, uh, Warner's wanted him to take a break. Uh, right. He'd release an album every year, you know, since, what, 77, 78. Um, right. The previous album did not sell well. Tours were not selling well. And they just, you know, you need to, he needs to take a rest. And uh, I, I think they put me in that position not because uh, they thought I was capable of handling it, but I was going to the guy that could give him that news, you know, to just stop. And, you know, if anything went wrong, I was going to be easy to point the finger at me saying it's his fault. And it's Prince's fault because he made his bodyguard security guy, you know, head of Paisley Park. Um, yeah. But obviously they underestimated us. Uh, right. And, and we went forward. It, it, it's another thing. And this speaks to, you know, Prince's uh, sensitivity. I remember we were on a flight and he asked me, he says, do you, does it bother you that, you know, people say negative things about you becoming president, my manager from, you know, where you were? And it really didn't. I mean, I didn't, I didn't read any, you know, press articles and stuff like that. Um, right. and, but I said, no. And he says, it shouldn't. He says, I used to be a caddy. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that he did when he was a kid. He was a caddy at a golf course. And it was just his way of going, you know. I did not know that. I always wondered if Prince ever had a normal, regular he job. He did have a normal, regular job. He was a caddy at a golf course. I did as a kid. not know that. Yeah. And, yeah. And, he, and he told me That's that. Awesome. And it was just, you know, his way of going, you, you can't allow, I mean, and I really mean you can't allow others to dictate what you're capable of doing. You know, it's just not. And I think that's one of the things that he was always trying to conveyed to his audience and to the you know record label so everyone it's like you're you are not going to set the parameters of who i'm going to be or what i'm going to do so i i am like incredibly this is like an, an amazing amazing interview and thank you for being so open and for the for those of you just joining us i am so sorry that i've gone this long without uh reintroducing uh, who we have here it's mr gilbert davison who has been with Prince since from 1984 to 1995 and a, a bunch of, I mean, just the accolades just go on forever from you know, director of security to president of Paisley Park and one of the founders of Glam Slam. And um, it's so it's again, it's an honor to have you on board. Now, I, I wanted to to kind of touch on this, too, because, you know, when you were put into that position at Paisley Park, like you had just alluded to, Paisley Park is in financial trouble. They, they, they're the overspending is heavily prevalent. And, and this is, I'm, this is obviously from what I've read in 1995, there was a publication called St. and may still exist. St. Paul pioneer press uh, mm -hmm. said that you frequently had to go behind Prince after he made some exorbitant request and, and tell them whatever he says, don't do that. 
And then when Prince found out that he had been denied what he had originally requested and that you, you know, stopped it or whatever, he would simply go into an account that he had access to and just write himself a check. I, how frustrating was that for you? Because I, I can't imagine what that must have been like when you're trying to like get things back in order. I mean, were you ever able to put the reins on that at all? Well, yeah. I mean, they 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 kind of put two different time periods into place. The bank account that he was drawing from, I I gave him that bank account. Um, and then say, well, what do you mean you gave him the bank account? It was his own money. I set up a bank account for him to do his own projects out of, so he would stay out of the company business. And and that was the thing. I think you know I had to get him to understand. Well, when I got the job, when I when when I accepted the job, because at first I said no. Then I said I'd agree to do it for a year, um, which turned into one, two, three, four. You know. But um, we had a conversation. He said, I don't want to have anything to do with the business. I just want to do my music. You do the business. I'll do the music. And I was like, that's just great. And, um, you know, I do want to take this time. It wasn't just me. We had a team of people. We there, there, you know, I, I don't like in the business where, you know, a person. So I did this. I did that. It takes a team of people to do this, this type of thing. And I had a team. And uh, so our team went to work and, you know, one of the things, so for example, the first uh, and approaching Warners, Warners did want him to take a break. Um, I had had a conversation with him uh, and this was the Diamonds and Pearls record, um, but I had a conversation with him about what he's done up to this point and about the need to do something different. Um, A conversation that, you know, the the purple family the purple fans were no longer showing up to our concerts in camisoles yes you guys did you know you did you know <laughs> and and ruffled shirts you know they moved on from that not necessarily from him but they grew up a little bit now they have um you know, families, they have mortgages, they have jobs, you know, and so let's write to that. Let's write a more adult record. And, you know, as I said, I mean, you could have any conversation with Prince and he could write about it. I, I don't care what it was. Right. And I'm not saying that, you know, that conversation was the catalyst for Diamonds and Pearls, but what he came back to me with was Diamonds and Pearls. And it was an adult contemporary record. And it was Prince's first adult contemporary record. And I knew when I listened to it, it's what I needed to, to go in and have this conversation with Warners. So here's a little tidbit. So I had to go to Warner Brothers knowing that they were going to try to convince me to a way to convince him to take a break. That's what this whole meeting was about. On our side of it, it was I had to go in there and convince him to allow us to release a record. Um, which, you know, they weren't going to stop it, but they weren't going to support it if he did. And uh, so before I went into that meeting, I told Prince, I said, if I call you and I ask you for something, just say yes. We can figure it out later. And so I go in and I hear the different guys from Warners, you know, saying this is why you shouldn't. This is why we need to take a break, blah, 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 blah. I listen to him. And I says, okay, guys, you know, I hear all that. I said, but we've got this amazing record. And instead of focusing on all the stuff that Prince has done, why don't we focus on the things he has not done? And they were like, well, he won't do interviews. You know, he won't go to, to, to conventions and meet the uh, radio programmers and all those things that you need to promote a record. And I was like, yeah, he will. And they were like, okay. So they, then they challenged me. So, well, okay, Jack the Rapper convention is coming up in Atlanta. 
we need him to go to Jack the Rapper and, and meet the radio program. And I said, no problem. We'll go, you know? And they were like, yeah. And they were like, there's no way. And then I was like, no, he'll go. And they were kind of like, well, you know, you're saying that he's going to go. But I said, well, you know, I'll get him on the phone. So I, I called him in that meeting on the speakerphone. It's like, hey, Prince, so-and-so's here, so-and-so's here, so-and-so's here. We're all excited about the record and whatnot, but we need you to play Jack the Rapper convention in Atlanta. And he goes, okay, I'll do it. And all right, you know, I'm going to finish up this meeting. I'll call you after. I'll talk to you later. And I hung up the phone and they lost it. There was like no effing way. Like he's going to do it. I was like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. You know, he'll he'll do it. And he did. And we did it. Yeah, he did. Um, we did a number of, if, if you look at what happened uh, during Diamonds and Pearls, we kind of opened up where he had been and made him more accessible. Uh, you know, it, it, it was working. Um, I think, uh, is it Diamond, not Diamonds and Pearls? It was one of those videos that we did. It was the first time Prince ever appeared with children um, in, in the music video. I think it was for that record. Maybe that was the Love Symbol record. Anyway. Um, and then, you know, putting the team together in order to, to bring that uh, album to, to true fruition. And there's a lot of, to unwrap here because so much had changed in the industry. Rap yeah. and hip hop were, you know, they were changing the, the whole yeah. scene of things. I mean, you know, there was, so there was, there was that out. R&B was going backwards, you know, and right. this whole new thing was coming up. And so, yeah. you know, here I'm trying to change this very provocative, you know, hypersexual brand that we had developed in the eighties. The and now I'm bringing them into your front living rooms. Um, and so, you know, there were other elements that we had to bring forward. And so this is a, a tidbit on your show that I don't think anyone knows. And I have to get kudos to, to these two people for making diamonds and pearls, the success that it was. And there were a lot of other people, but this is the two that people don't know. So I hired two people to work this uh, album for us at radio. And one of those people were Bob Cavallo, Prince's former manager. I had so much respect for Bob. Bob was a genius. You know, he knew this business better than most people. I mean, he was just one of those brilliant right. men that I just loved and had a lot of respect for. So I had to call Bob and I asked Bob if he would work the record for us on the West Coast, which he agreed to do. Wow. And on the East Coast, we hired Frank DeLeo, Michael Jackson's former manager, worked the East Coast in radio promotion for the Diamonds and Pearls album. And uh, yeah, so they def they had a hand in making it the success that it was. Well, was Prince aware that you had reached back out to Gavala? Absolutely. Yeah. And he didn't. He didn't push back at all. Like, it was it, well, well, well. You did the music. <laughs> okay. I did the business, and that was the agreement. You know, right. so you take care of the business. I'll take care of the music. And you know, I, I think that um, again, you know, he was aware that we were doing something different. Um, for me, it was applying, you know, business one on one ethics to Paisley Park, and in, as opposed to it being a facility that was trying to assuage his needs and desires and stuff on a consistent basis. Like, let's run this thing as a business. That That's what this is really all about. And if the business works, it's going to allow you to do the things that you want to do. 
you know, but it's got to work for, 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 and, you know, in, in defense of the industry, um, and then maybe in defense of Warner's, I, I understood what their concerns were. You know, there was a business model that, that had to be followed in order to sell records. That's the business that we were in. The music is from an artistic standpoint, you know, it, 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 it is what it is. It's, it's a beautiful thing. You're creating a product, but at the end of the day, from a business standpoint, it's a product and you have to figure out a way to get that, not just get the product out to the masses, but to sell that product to the masses. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what their job was. And they were saying, this is difficult for us to do under the, the guys that we've been doing it for the last 10, 11 years. And so something new had to happen. And so Diamonds and Pearls was that new thing that happened. Yeah, uh, this is actually a, a picture for those who are watching. Uh, I know we've got many, many, many people that are listening audio only on the app. Hopefully you guys will be able to tune in and check out the video version of this. But I'm showing a picture that's a screen capture from Get Off. And I, I'd read a story about a guy named Rob Borm, uh, mm -hmm. the videographer that made the video for Get Off. Uh, do you remember this guy? Oh, yeah. I remember uh, Rob. Uh, at the time... Warner Brothers had cleared a $220,000 budget to make this video. And your instructions to Brom or I'm uh, Borm were, uh, is it Brom or Borm? Borm, Rob Borm. Um, okay. Your instructions to him were Prince wants his yellow suit in it. He wants his yellow car in it. And he wants it to look a little like Caligula. And then you also added, oh, by the way, there's probably going to be quite a few changes to the concept. <laughs> And the project ended up costing $1.3 million since Prince wanted to make the most use out of that Caligula type set. He really dug the imagery. And this is a storyline I've seen a lot in, in the Prince world where people had to chase him down for payment or more so non-payment on projects like this. How much did this kind of stuff put you through? Uh, how much hell did this put you through? And just kind of use a little more loose uh, when he would do things kind of like this. I mean, were you ever caught in the middle? I'm sure that you were. Uh, this some type of activity where people are just coming to you as the director of Paisley Park and demanding to be paid. I mean, was this like a regular daily thing for you? Yeah. And so, you know, you kind of get back into the position of, you know, the, the person that asked, did you have to tell Prince? No, you know, it's my job to say no. And unfortunately, um, you know, everybody's going to have their different way of telling that story, but what, what happened frequently is he would ask to do something and they couldn't tell him no they wouldn't tell him no they would just do it and then they would come to me with the bill and i was like well this wasn't improved approved and so well, he told me to do it it's like well yeah but you needed to come there's a system here you need to come get approval from me or from accounting or someone has to know you know that he's going to do this or he wants to do that and right. so if it can't be done, because to be honest, I mean, Prince wasn't looking at the books, um, right. you yeah. know, so, and he wouldn't, he also wouldn't know how much something costs. So he might say, yeah, I want my yellow car here. And, you know, let's just, for example, let's say, you know, that's $10,000. And, uh, but he wouldn't know it was $10,000, but they would still bill us $10,000. And then it would come to me and say, well, I need $10,000. Prince wanted his yellow car there. And they, of course I would be like, well, who approved it? You know, well, he told me to do it. It's like, well, yeah, but that's not approval. I mean, if he had asked you to bring in a herd of elephants, well, how much was that going to cost? You're like, didn't you 
think to take the time to come and get approval. And, and, and so, you know, there was a lot of that going on and just trying to, you know, calm some of those things down before the bills got out of hand. Um, but there were times, yeah, they would, they would get out of hand and sometimes I wouldn't approve it. It's like, you know, that's your fault. Like you have to be responsible that you didn't follow the system that was in place to get approval. Prince isn't the approval. I was the approval. And that was the other thing. Um, you know, they gave me oversight of the, of the company. So he didn't have the ability to just spend at his own discretion without consequences. And I, I got to ask, I got to ask this question though. What is your family life like at this point when you're working for him? Oh, um, yeah. How did, I mean, I can't even imagine Prince is his whole world is, all enveloping it seems so i, I you know, i'm just trying to figure out where because we're going to talk about michael here starting in this next question and I, mm -hmm. I, I go back to my original question what is your family life how how is this um it was it was difficult um i guess i guess would say challenging um as a young family at that time uh, I think Michael was four, five, six years old at the time, and um, my oldest daughter Essence was nine at the time, ten. So there were a lot of things that I was missing out on. Um, but I was working, you know, at the end of the day, like most people, I mean, you're doing this job, and you're doing it to provide for your family, and I was providing for my family. So when I measured it, that you know they had what they needed. You know, they were safe, they were comfortable. Um, you know, I, I felt as a provider, I was able to go above and beyond. And, you know, somebody makes that sacrifice in a family structure. And so I just kind of figured it was it's what I signed on to. Um, but, you know, we handled it and, and, and yeah, it, it, we made it work. Uh, my wife had worked for, for Sheila E, so she knew you know, what this lifestyle and, and what that was all about. So I think that was easier for her to, to disseminate um, or assimilate, you know, Where what was going to happen there. We met on the Purple Rain Tour. Actually, she was Sheila E's uh, road manager. And, as a, you know, I was doing security. So that's where we met. Um, so, okay. so that, so that tour worked out because the two of them were together playing together regularly in that tour. Mm -hmm. uh, the side of the times tour works out because Sheila's playing drums for him at mm -hmm. that point. So it, it seemed like your relationship really kind of worked out in a lot of ways because there was a lot of tours where Sheila was there, but you know what? Uh, yeah. Again, I, the yeah, and that's why I say, you know, there were, there were, there were different, it, the scope of the relationship of Prince and I wasn't just the, the business part of it, you know? And, um, you know, so with Michael, for example, he'd come to the house and, and see Michael. Um, Prince was, Prince was, <laughs> so Sheila is, is Michael's godmother. Yes. I was, yeah, I, I was going, I was going to refer to that here. Let me, let me put up this, uh, put up this picture of Michael. For those of you who know, a few weeks ago, we were honored to have Michael Gabriel here. Yes. On the show, for those who do not know, Michael Gabriel is Gilbert Davis's son. You heard, and we we intentionally did not bring this up 
I saw it go by in the chat a, a couple of times because I this album by Michael, uh, his brand new album is so phenomenal. And I'm not really saying is. that for any other reason, just because it is a fantastic album. It is just strong from front to back. The songwriting is amazing front to back. And I wanted it to stand on its own without you guys knowing that Gilbert Davison was his father or that Prince and Sheila E were his godparents. So I wanted to make sure that that component didn't affect how you viewed this album. And I think that um, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it, it definitely it, it stood it, on its own for it, sure. It absolutely it stood on its own. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, so I, I do have to ask, did Prince spend a lot of time with, with Michael as far as, you know, just hanging out with him or musically or any of that? Well, I, you know, I would say that. So, no, I can't say that, you know, you know, hang out and, you know, we're going to watch cartoons on Saturday morning with him. Dang. Um, <laughs> but he, he would come by. I mean, he would, he would come by and, and, and visit, you know, from time to time. And it was almost like a curiosity, you know, because it was something that he didn't have in, in his in his life. And so, you know, Michael was able to kind of give him a little bit of insight of what it was like to have have a kid around. Um, when you walked into Prince's house for a number of years, Michael's picture is what you saw. I mean, he had it right in the in the in the front door uh, picture that we gave him. Um, with my son Francisco, you know, Prince came down to the hospital when he was born. Um, you know, so there was this whole integration of the family thing um that kind of tied into our relationship um you know i don't uh he would show up sometimes and honk the horn and hey prince is outside and you know we'd go right around and listen to different music that he was working on and whatnot really? or yeah wow. or you know prince is on the phone he wants you to come play basketball you know that kind of thing so um so there was definitely a a, a more of a family connection um a brotherhood if you will than, than just a work relationship which to be honest is one of the reasons why um when i was offered the job of president i was hesitant because i knew that that was going to change and again it's moving from being that guy that's supporting him helping to do the stuff that he wanted to do and i was still that as president but i was also now going to become that's uh you know that guy that's telling him no, that kind of had to stand in the gap for his own good at certain times. And, and, you know, I, I knew that that was going to change the different dynamics. I also knew I wasn't going to have time to hang out and, you know, play basketball with you or, you know, let's go to the movies. I was just too busy because I not only had Paisley, I had the club at the same time. Um, right. So, you know, the dynamics of, of work, didn't only affect my relationship here at home. It definitely affected my relationship with him. Yeah, it's and it's just I, people are losing their minds here in the chat room. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> okay. and, and and that's what I didn't want when we were doing the show with right. Michael is that I didn't want that to derail what we were doing with him. Um, I mean you already kind of answered the question is like, I, I always wanted to know if, if Michael actually had spent any time uh, with uh, Prince and Michael had ever spent any time together, you know, give him some tips or do any jam sessions with him. You I know, Michael told me this story and, and this was, this was more recently actually, because they were in the studio. Um, uh, he had went in the studio with Prince and Sheila 
And um, I think Michael was probably on 19 or 20, 21 at the time. Um, and this is his story to tell, so I'm uncomfortable. He probably wouldn't tell the story because for him, you know, he's always kind of been in this this environment of of entertainment and whatnot. This is not new to him. And so there's certain things that we talk about. There's certain things you don't talk about. You know, you don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. So he's just kind of holds some cards close to the chest. But he went to the studio and with Prince and um, he said Prince was playing something. I asked him, you know, how he was doing because um, I hadn't talked to him. This was after I had left. I said, you know, how was he doing? He said, it's fine. And Michael says, you know, he was playing something. He was trying to explain what he was doing uh, in constructing this song. And, he, and Michael said, but he looked at me. He goes, he understands what I'm talking about. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that was kind of like, for me, a, a way of Prince knowing, like I said, he just had this innate sense of being able to I don't know, sense talent or realize talent or, or just know. Michael's always just kind of been comfortable, you know, around music. And, you know, when you have a child, you, you want, Chris, you're a father, right? Jeff, are you a father? Yes, uh, I am. Yes. Okay. So you guys know you want the best for your children. You know, you want them to follow their dreams and, you know, do what they want to do. And understanding how difficult this, this business is, you know, with Michael, we never pushed him towards music you know if, if anything i'd push him somewhere else having been in it myself knowing the difficulty but it's just always been there with them um you know so we try to provide the support that we needed but we were never you know this is you're going to be this you're going to be that and it was always more making sure that he had a life of stability and and, and that he was happy um and, and that he he had the opportunities but in order to to do this, you can only go so far, and then it just becomes you. And you guys know this as performers. Yes. You know that that's a lonely place to be. You can have you know the accolades, you can have the applause, but at some point, it just becomes you. And um, and that's what I'm most proud with him. I mean, he's been able to navigate and and and, and handle that, and um, he's aspiring to me. I'm so proud. Uh, of, of him and, and what he's been able to accomplish. And I just look forward to, you know, what he's going to do in sharing his talent with the world. Yeah. I can only we imagine too. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine that working with Sheila E is, is a masterclass in itself. I mean, it's, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> she's, she's been at it for a minute. When yeah. was the last time that you stepped inside Paisley Park? I know you were at the celebration in 2018. Was that the last time? Yeah, I mean, I guess it was a, a year ago. Um, probably, yeah, probably in the last year or so. Um, you know, I, I went over for different reasons. Um, and yeah. the reason why I ask is because a, a lot has changed inside that building. With because I, I watch old videos of of some you know cinematography that was done inside that building before it was before he passed and everything kind of changed and murals got painted over and things got repurposed. Um, thinking about all that, because um, you spent a lot of time there, what is one thing that you saw when you were there that you wish they wouldn't have changed or, or made? Um, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to, uh, identify the space 
for what it is now as compared to what it was um, when it was Paisley Paisley Park, the production facility. Um, I, I understand and I can appreciate what they're doing and what had to be done. And even what Prince was doing as he was, you know, wanting it to be open more to the public and things like that. But um, for me, Paisley was always its own separate entity. You know, I, I kind of identified it as be, being a living, breathing thing. And so with that said, she was built to produce art. She was built to produce work. She was built to produce music. She was built to produce shows and, and all that. And so, you know, it, it's kind of hard for me to see it through the lens that it is now and, and appreciate it. Um, I was more, and I think still, you know, kind of the line of she's, she's got to go back to her true nature and, you know, continue to be what she was designed to be. Um, right. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, I was talking to the previous group that was responsible for the facility and uh, it was during an interview of, um, you know, when they were going back and forth of what happens next. And I said, well, you know, right now you guys are kind of dancing a fine line between it either being a museum or a mausoleum. And, you know, yeah. I, so, right. you know, yeah. and, and it's hard. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it, it's hard. It's not, it, it wasn't easy to, to run and make the space work when Prince was alive, you know, and when everything was clicking on all cylinders. It, it takes a certain amount of fortitude, courage, and creativity to make that place work. But he showed that it can be done. It's just, you know, you have to have uh, the willingness to do it. I had like, uh, obviously, God, it seems like what seems like a hundred more questions. So uh, Jeff, I'm just going to let you know, I'm going to be bouncing around here because I want to make sure that I use this time very, very wisely because, you know, I don't know when we're going to be cut off here because I keep you all night. I'm not kidding. You. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to talk about the Black Album and and Love Sexy, the whole debacle around that. Um, and the reason why I want to ask, obviously, for a variety of reasons, but but start, what was your title at that time during the Black Album and Love Sexy? Ooh, at that time, you know, I was, so I was director of security, but that's definitely, particularly with the, the Black Album thing, you know, that was the liaison thing. I mean, you know, it was him walking out to me, canceled the record, you know, call the label, call management, whatever. I'm not doing it. And, you know, then the questions kind of flow. So I, yeah. I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure here that everyone knows. Um, but I, I, I know that we actually have like a bunch of, we have, we have a lot of, of people that, that don't know a lot of the things that us purple circle folks do, but so let me give everybody here just a really, really quick reader's digest version of, of what, uh, our guest Gilbert Davison is uh, who was director of security, head of uh, director of Paisley Park, uh, just all, all around extraordinary gentleman. Uh, but here's here's the story. 1987, Prince records the Black Album 
and it's done. It's not. Re- it's kind of the same black album that you guys got later in the '90s, but it's not. Um, and it's done. It's sent to the printers. It's ready for distribution, and then Prince has an epiphany. Some say it's induced by a night on ecstasy. Don't get your panties in a bunch. Don't get your panties in a bunch. That's what people have said. But one second while we're here, though. Engineer Susan Rogers said that Prince was definitely on something that night. In, uh, I guess, in 1988, Dr. Fink um, said the same thing. And Dr. Fink actually told the Telegraph that you told him that. So technically, it's already out there by two sources already. There was something going on with Prince that evening when he came to that epiphany that the Black Album is evil. I don't want anything to do with it. Um, So... I, I will allow you to plead the fifth here, um, but I wouldn't be doing my journalistic duty if I didn't ask. And to be clear, <laughs> for everyone here in the Purple Circle, Prince did not take recreational drugs. We know that. Um, it's important that we not tarnish his legacy. But it, would you agree that he was in a different headspace when when that whole thing occurred? Were you there when that happened, when he came to tell you, this has got to stop, you got to pull this album? What What was going on that night? Yeah, so I was in the lobby uh, of Paisley at the time, and um, we had, I think, had met Ingrid Chavez that night. Uh, we were at a club in Uptown, Williams Pub, I think it was. And uh, so we went back to, to play the album. Um, and so he was in the studio. I was just wanting to go home because it was late, uh, but I was waiting for them to get done uh, with playing the album. It's probably going to take Ingrid back. Um, and then he came out and said, you know, I'm not going to do the record, you know, release it. I, I never, and honestly, I never saw Prince take drugs. I mean, just, it just wasn't his thing. It wasn't what he did. Right. Um, as far as, uh, I heard that too, that Matt said that I told him that, but you know, sorry, Fink. It's like, I don't, and I wouldn't, if I had that conversation, definitely wouldn't have had that with Matt. Um, so I'll just leave that there. You would have um, said just between you and me. Don't yeah, no, right. yeah. We just didn't have that kind of relationship. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I, I, I always thought honestly that he was, he, something had just kind of like you said epiphany. It, it was that. And you know, that sounds, well, you're going to cancel whole album. You're going to, you know, go through all this. But for Prince, that was normal. You know, as I said, you could have any conversation with this guy and he could turn that into more than just the thought. And so him being provoked by whatever it was that just makes him decide to go in the direction of Love Sexy, for me, I I didn't find it uh, stunning. I, I didn't find it shocking. And I remember that night we were driving around and I, I told him, I says, welcome back because he had been troubled just about i don't know music or you know what that was that next thing going to be and i think the black album yeah so so he's doing the black album but for him it's just it's music and so he does the music and he'll put it into the context of what this piece of work is going to be but if you remember leading up to that i think we had camille we had Dream Factory. We had a number of, of records. And yeah. I think one of the reasons why he was able just to put the brakes on that project 
was not because you know he was suddenly induced by some drug that had you know caused him to have this revelation. I think it was more he found a purpose, and he didn't feel that the Black Album had any more of a purpose than just another record to release a record. It was just another project to release a project because you know everyone expected him to release a record. And if you listen to the Black Album, you kind of get that, you know, even in its its current form. It's like, what's the context of this record? What message is he trying to send? With right. Love Sexy, he had a message, you know. So there was this this whole thing. He needed to say something other than just putting out another project. And so that's kind of you know where the Black Album, I think, rested with with him. That was kind of my thought behind it. And also. We had no idea it was going to become this sought-after bootleg, you know, huge thing, you know, that it became like this mysterious record that that thought never even crossed our mind. And to be honest, if it had, I would have just went in the storage room and grabbed 10 cases myself, you know, but it just wasn't a thing, you know, it was Saturday night and he had a change of of heart and that's, that's what it was for us at the time. and allowed him to go back in the studio and he created another, you know, piece of work. Um, so, and I think what you're saying aligns with what I think what we know about Prince was that not that he was on ecstasy, but we, we know that he gets into these modes where he, he hits an epiphany kind of sort of like makes. what happened with rainbow children where something clicks with him spiritually and he just, he, he gets focused and he's, targeted and everything else be damned type of mode he raises his life and and that's that's makes a lot more sense than oh he took ecstasy why well why would he do that uh, it's just it's just yeah it's not in his character exactly it's not in his character and i saw like i said i mean i i had told him welcome back just because he didn't seem troubled or burdened anymore by what whatever um you know he felt like he had a purpose in writing this this other record instead. And that's what he, he did. And he was back on track, right? So back somewhere between a supernatural intervention uh, and, of course, that kind of coupled with the spiritual guidance of a very young, enlightened woman named Ingrid Chavez, who's a dear friend to the show. She's been on the show a few times. Mm-hmm. He decides the album, the Black Album, for those, uh, you know, new Prince fans is too dark and he scraps the project and puts out the words to distributors to destroy all the copies before they're distributed. And to compensate for the album being pulled, he starts on this writing tear, writing about the dark force, uh, who he names spooky electric. And, uh, you know, he puts together the album love sexy. That's the reader's digest version. But, um, yeah, so I, I, my question was, you know, what do you remember about that time period and what it looked like from the inside? And you kind of already answered that question. But here's the next question. What were your thoughts about that album cover? <laughs> well, so when we did that album cover, he wasn't naked. He did have on shorts. Just sorry. What? I mean, he did. All- yeah, they, yeah, they airbrushed that out. He, Are you he serious? Did. Wait. Yes, yes. No, he had shorts on during that. <laughs> did, you know that uh-huh. did you know that? Were you aware? I did that, not know. Did that. you know that he was wearing shorts and this was? I'm airport? sorry, I, I don't. Did anybody you know else know that? Stick with your imagination. Yeah, no, my imagination wanted to believe what you just said. I, no, he he had on. He had I on wanted shorts. him to wear shorts. I'm glad. No, no, we he, he had on shorts. Yeah, Prince 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 did have a certain level of modesty. You know, just 
the spider. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Oh man. So I mean, you know, it was it was. Um, you know, I <laughs> yes. think that God. what That's... what he <laughs> was. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I'm sorry. I, I feel like was, I ruined something all of a sudden. No, it's not that. I when the album came out, I had to buy a, <laughs> I, I had to buy another album so that I when I was walking to the register, I could put that album on top of this one. Right. <laughs> we had so many conversations about how difficult it was to purchase this record. Oh no. Yeah, no. <laughs> Right. I remember so, walking up and walking away when somebody was in front of me and trying to figure out how do I get this thing out of the store. See, there, there again, you know, I mean, for us, we're releasing it. And, you know, I, I, I often tell Michael, I say, you know, when you're in the eye of the hurricane, you don't realize the chaos that's going, you're causing, you know. <laughs> so we had no idea. It was just a very artistic, yeah, that looks, that looks cool. You know, yeah, that, that looks all right. <laughs> You know, and off we go. Um, so yeah, so we didn't, we didn't quite. It, 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 the the controversy didn't quite resonate with us, um, with with this record. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, it's just wow. That's <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, you heard it here <laughs> first. <laughs> you heard it here first. Uh, yeah, somewhere, some somewhere in the archives, there's the true picture of Prince in shorts. So that's what we that want up, our hands that on. Up. That is there. That's the one. That's the one you need. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. What? Okay. All right. So uh, amazing. That is amazing. That is definitely amazing. Hey, Dwayne Tudal, did you get that? <laughs> right. You've got a brand new book that's coming out that's going to be covering the Black Album and love. Yeah. It. You know what, Dwayne? You have a bestseller if you can find the picture of Prince in the Shorts. <laughs> It, it, there you that go. It. Yeah, he that, that, that's the Holy Grail right there. The Holy Grail is the actual picture. Oh my God. Oh man. <laughs> oh my God. So, all right, all right. So let's let's. Uh, th there's there's only one more there's only one more topic that I wanted to cover. There's so much more that we can go through. I mean, Gilbert, yeah. let me just pause just for a second because, um, I have nothing but the utmost respect for everything that you've done in your career and you've done it in such an honorable way, um, you know, just kind of stay out of the, the chatter. Um, and I, I just, I, I can't, this, this tonight has been easily one of the most informative <laughs> shows right. ever uh, about, uh, about Prince. And I cannot, are you going to write a book? You have to are write you? it. It's, I, somebody's had to have talked, you into this at some point yeah i've been approached to do it and whatnot you know i i don't probably not um <sighs> no i mean well, you know so yeah. again you kind of get into that personal space and uh, yeah, yeah you know there's just those things that um we shared or experience or whatever that are just kind of our stuff like, like it's almost some of the stuff would just be you know Somebody had asked me this question. I said, you know, half the stuff that I would talk about, most people wouldn't believe anyway. Like, you know, <laughs> Prince never ate meat. It's like, yeah, he did. <laughs> you know, Prince never did. Yeah, he did. You know, that kind of thing. So I, I wouldn't want to, you know, number one, do any dishonor to, to my friend. Um, right. And the, the other part of it is, you know, some of those tales to tell um, are our tales, I guess. Um, wouldn't really right, know how to tell them or, or, or wouldn't know how to fill in the gap so people quite under, understood it. 
Um, however, you know, th there is a concern of mine um, that I, I don't want the humanity of Prince to be lost in the mystique. You know, right. he's a very uh, inspiring individual for what he did. And, and I think that people actually, even with all the accolades and praise that he gets, don't truly, you know, can comprehend what he achieved in, in his time um, and what he had continued to do, you know, afterwards. Uh, you know, one of the things I struggle with and, and I appreciate and, and we love the fact that the fans, you know, recognize, you know, all the things that he did in with Purple Rain and all that. Um, but man, I mean, you're talking about 30 years of music after that. Right. And you're talking about thousands of songs in a vault, you know, beyond that. And, you know, he's 57 when he passed away. So, you know, kind of what would he have done after that? And you realize all this is coming from one person and you just like, wow. So, you know, I would encourage everyone to take those deep dives into the work that he did and, you know, almost, and in some respects, look beyond, you know, the, the music and, you know, into the philanthropy and, just all the things that he was trying to do as, as a person, you know, as a human, um, you know, he would be the first to tell you, no, he was not perfect, um, but none of us are. And, and that was the beauty of, of, of him in, in a lot of ways. I don't think he ever tried to uh, make others think that he was. He was just him, and he was very good at being friends. Well, considering yeah. the fact that you had what I would consider the longest elite job, summer job in the history of mankind. <laughs> you are the person that could tell the story. In fact, that if you did do it, that could be the title, the longest summer, summer job. job. Jeff, that's it. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to give you credit in the book. Thanks to Jeff Page. So, so you get you get that credit. I get credit for. You got a song song. coming to you. Yeah, easy on the eyes. Uh, I've got that song. Song title it's coming. The, it's in the works too. It's in the works. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to use the word banana though. Still, we're still waiting for the banana song. So. <laughs> I know it's custard. Was it custard? That custard. Custard. Good. custard. We got custard. <laughs> we, got custard. <laughs> we got so much going on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, I do want to ask you about this, too, before we move, because the last topic I want to talk to you about is the Glam Slam nightclubs. We kind of touched on a little bit, but uh, mm -hmm. before before we move on to that, I do want to talk about Maite. Mm -hmm. um, many don't know this, but you also currently serve as uh, Maite's manager. Mm -hmm. so, so you were right there when she came on board, and you probably had front row seats to watching that relationship between Prince and Maite start kind of blossoming. Obviously, at that point, she's uh, under 18 when she first comes on the scene. But is it is it obvious to you or anyone else that something else is happening there once she starts coming of age? I mean, are, are you starting to see, like, are you literally watching this relationship unfold before you? Is it Was it something... Everybody claims, and, and I would claim the same, that out, out of all the women that Prince has been with, Maite is easily by far the closest thing to his soulmate that probably would ever be. Um, and and some would argue that I, I'll just I'll let you speak on Maite. Um, I'm just gonna switch real quick. My earphone, my earbuds are getting ready to tank on. I mean, can you hear me okay? Yeah, can hear you fine. Yeah. All right, great. Um, 
Yeah, I, 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 I would definitely say there was a love there quickly. I mean, I don't think he could have thought her up. Um, he couldn't have created her out of his own hand um, when he started having those feelings for her. And, you know, I shared this with Maite. You know, she was one of the reasons why I'd left, to be honest. Um, really? Well, she was there. And I felt in a way that he needed to find, he needed to become more responsible for what he was doing or what he wanted to do and, and whatnot. And that's a whole nother story. But I thought she would make him okay. Like, uh, this is the wow. person that he, she, he'd be okay because she was around. And if I felt that he wasn't going to be okay, I probably wouldn't have left. But wow. she was, uh, she was definitely, she gave me the relief that I needed that, you know, my friend was going to be okay. Things are going to turn out well. And um, so when I left, you know, I, I see, you know, he's getting married and all this other stuff. For me, I was like, that's great. Like, finally, <laughs> like, finally, you know, he's <laughs> to that point. He, he's found what he's been looking for and that whole thing. Buddy, so, I'm uh, home. I'll be home for yeah, dinner. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But you know what? I mean, it's kind of, I remember he got mad. We were talking one night and he's like, you know, you have this, you have that, you have a family, and you have children. Why don't I have that? And I'm like, who's stopping you? You know, like you need to do that, you know, do right. that if that's what you want to do. And, um, and then he did, you know, and, and, um, you know, he tried to make the, the most of that. And, and, uh, you know, unfortunately things didn't turn out the way that I think he had hoped and that she had hoped and, and everything, you know, life happens. And sometimes just those things that uh, are beyond your control take place. And, you know, you had to find a way to navigate to that as well. Right. Yeah, I know that um, today was the anniversary of his appearance on The Muppet Show. And I remember the, the core reasoning for him going to do that was he really wanted to set up a library for his, his children. He kind of was in that, okay, that kid mode. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the thing about the relationship that I saw with, with him is it, she allowed him to get beyond himself and yeah. get outside of himself. And, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, one of the, the the things about him is he had trouble not being Prince, you know, not being the, the persona that we all realize until my yeah. day. And then he found a way to, to do that. I mean, I remember one of the first... Shots I saw with him. I think he was just in a sweater or something. He looked like a, you know, his, his dad look, if you will. And I was just kind of like, whoa, okay, you know, because he's getting there. So, you know, um, beautiful relationship. Yeah, I would, uh, I would imagine it's kind of because you also manage Sheila E. I, I can't imagine what it's like to uh, manage two of Prince's great loves <laughs> at the same time under the same roof. Um, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, the, in the relationship with different Sheila, times, different eras, very right? Yeah, different eras, different times. You know, just different personalities, personas, and everything else. Um, you know, and in the love and, and dedication that Sheila and Prince had to each other was real. Um, you know, but again, you know, life just kind of steps in and takes in different ways. And there was just so many different things going on at at the time. Um, and if you can imagine, Purple Rain. I mean, Sheila was the opening act for that show. And just the chaos that was during that time and 
for the subsequent years, you know, it, it's it's difficult to to cultivate a full relationship and you know just with all that going on there was so much to do you know we did purple rain and it was the building of paisley park and then it was you know keeping all that going and having you know prior to paisley you know we would have our staff would grow when we went on tour but after paisley was built now you have you know uh in what at least 75 to 90 employees at any given time in paisley and that's a huge responsibility so just a lot just a lot going on yeah. So, all right. So we're going to, we're going to finish up here. I know I'm like, I'm killing myself here because I do have a lot of questions, but I, I'm, again, I'm trying to be respectful of your time. Um, but I do want to touch on glam slam just for a second because, and then I want to briefly touch on what you're doing now. Um, we can, we've already kind of touched on glam slam already that, you know, glam slam was really, you know, your idea to kind of, have a venue that would actually be something that would be a focal point for Minneapolis and the entertainment industry would be like the, you know, the, the piece de resistance of, of, you know, a, a performing facility, a, a concert hall type of scenario, just, uh, and it also held, uh, if I remember correctly, 800 more people than first Avenue did. So I imagine that you setting up glam slam, the initial design process of it was, this is, we need to do, what first Avenue is doing, but better, better. Um, and so do you kind of feel like, even though glam slam is no more, do you kind of feel like it accomplished what it really needed to accomplish at, at the time when it was opened? Yeah, I, I think, um, it definitely made uh, a difference. Uh, you know, it, it made its mark in, in its time. Um, and, you know, but I, again, you know, I, I give credit to a lot of the staff and employees that we had uh, in, in running it and developing it. It's not one person, wasn't just me, it wasn't just Prince, you know, and that whole thing. Um, the, the timing of it was, was good. I, I would say that had I had more experience in running a club, um, which took me years to figure out, because I really wasn't there during those first, you know, three or four years that I was running Paisley. Um, it, it could have been almost like a, a different kind of thing. You know, I appreciate what the House of Blues was able to do. And, and we were kind of following that yeah. model. But, you know, again, for those entrepreneurs out there, you can't open up a business and not run the business. You know, you need to be there. And I just didn't have the ability to be there and, 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 and whatnot. Um, I'm going to switch here because I think my earphones just went out. Yep. I can still hear you, though. I can hear you. Okay. Great. I'm there you go. Here. Um, Welcome back. Thank you. So, um, so yeah, it, it, was, uh, it, was, it was successful for what it was. Um, and, you know, when I switched it over to the Quest, um, we, I ran that, had that place for 16 years. So, you know, for those in the nightclub life, having a venue for 16 years, um, the capacity of it was 2,200 people doing that week after week uh, for 16 years. Yeah. Because Prince sold Glam Slam Club to you, and then you renamed it Quest. Um, no, no. A actually, so I own the one. Prince never owned the one in Minneapolis. And this, again, speaks more to his generosity. 
he knew and I knew that more people were going to come to that club if it was a Prince club than Prince it was a club. Gilbert Davison club. Gotcha. I, I knew on my side that he needed to expand his brand. Prince needed to, to be more than just a pop star. And so it would help him by showing that he has this business acumen and that he was, you know, growing in his brand and what he was doing. So it worked for him also to have a club. With that said, and, and you know, for those people out there that, that own a business, think about Prince owning a, a nightclub. Think about somebody of his stature actually owning one. Um, it, it, <laughs> from a practical side, it wouldn't make sense only because with the lawsuits and everything that would come flying through, suddenly he has this exposure. I wasn't going to put him in that position. His business manager at the time was definitely not, and his lawyers were not going to put him in a position. And they made that clear to me. So mm -hmm. we opened up the club in, um, well, I opened up the club in Minneapolis, and then we had a franchise in Yokohama, Japan, which a lot of people don't know about. Actually, I found a tape of that, that club the other day. Um, and that club was beautiful. It was just as big as the one here in Minneapolis. Um, it had a restaurant. Um, you know, it was re retrofitted from what it was, but uh, we had that one. And then um, Prince wanted, he did want to have his own clubs. And um, I was reluctant to do it. To be honest, I didn't want to do it because, again, you know, how, how are we going to run this? I was already doing this one. Um, I had Paisley and, you know, I knew he wasn't going to go down <laughs> and, yeah. you know, run a club in Miami and run a club in right. Los Angeles. But I put those together. Uh, that's something that he wanted to do. And what I would do is I would have my general managers from here go to those other satellites, what I call them satellites, and then they would get those up and running and, and, and function. So all of it did kind of run out of the Minneapolis venues in one way, shape or form. Um, so we did that. So in the club in, in, in Miami, strange, it was funny, when I signed off on the contract for that venue, the owner who we purchased the club from says, you know, it's really weird you guys bought this venue. And I was like, well, why do you say that? And he goes, well, because this is where you had the end of the Purple Rain Tour party. And I knew I had been in that space before, but I never made the connection to it. Wow. When he said it, it all came back to him. I'm like, oh, my God, that, it, it is the place. You know, I remembered it was a movie theater and it had a balcony and I thought it was one of the coolest places I'd ever been. Yeah. So, you know what? eight years later we ended up, i six years later i ended up buying it um eight years later and then uh and then the one in in los angeles was actually uh uh it's owned by a guy named jim kalash this great guy um hi jim if you ever see this uh he owned it and it was vertigo it was a club called vertigo a very successful club uh so we bought that club and, and changed it into glance in los angeles and that club was definitely had um uh, prince's uh hand all over that venue that that one i think more so than the other ones represented his vision and idea it was definitely a departure from what i had developed in the in la Minneapolis. the la one that was that was definitely a yeah, I, club i i i kind of got that vibe because when i there's a bunch of clips from that um homer's odyssey play or whatever that yeah. uh was of all the naked women strapped to walls and stuff and i think 
This is going to have prints written all over it. Yeah, that had prints written all over it. It was funny. So the one in Minneapolis, I, I, I brought him down one time. I said, I want you to see the venue. And it's funny because I think he thought I was getting ready to open it. And they were still doing construction. The bars weren't done. I just kind of wanted him to see, you know, how it was coming along. And so we walk in through all this debris and whatnot. And he looks at me and he says, what, is the, what did you bring me down here for? I said, well, I wanted to see you to see what it looked like. He said, I don't care what it looks like. It's, I don't want to see it till it's done. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, and then, you know, when we open it, when we opened it, there were, I didn't want the bathtub. I didn't want the motorcycle, you know, I, because I, I knew the club had to stand on its own two feet. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want him to have to show up every weekend to, you know, perform a concert um, in order to make the club work. It, it had to be its own thing. And it was. So, you know, I, I think when people came in and even when he came in, it's like there's no Prince pictures. There's there was nothing there. But I did. Uh, it was a little bit vanity or whatnot. So I had these reliefs made that were on the pillars in that club of his face and my face and the person that helped me to open it were, were in there. Really? And, uh, yeah. Was that kind of done in, you know, very slyly I'm yeah like, if you didn't it was kind of like a disney thing i'm a huge disney fan so it was kind of like let's just put a little you know easter egg in the venue easter so eggs. when you walked in that was the one the prince's face was it was in that club very cool yeah wow and this was just in the la one this was in no this was the minneapolis one and in it was only it was only in the minneapolis one yeah. wow i don't know if any of you guys have been into the glam slam in minneapolis but if you didn't notice that you missed it you, so, missed, it. you missed it you missed it <laughs> Um, yeah, because I guess, I guess the, the perfect closing point to this is kind of, you know, what ended up happening with your relationship with Prince. I know that you guys, you stepped away in 95, you had mentioned, uh, or you are, you, I think your recollection was 94. Um, but you had mentioned that my tape was, was kind of part of that decision, but, um, I, was there anything else that kind of you know, came, came into play as far as your decision to kind of walk away. I mean, I mean, well, yeah, spot? I would say that, you know, like I said, as far as the relationship, um, you know, it definitely had changed, particularly in that last year. Um, this, cause there was just more no's, you know, he was unhappy with the, the record deal. Yeah. Um, I really wouldn't say he was unhappy with the record deal. He was unhappy with the business model of record companies. Yeah. And now I had become a part of that, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and it was because I'm trying now I'm explaining to him, no, this is why this has to work this way. And it's like, well, he just didn't want it to work that way. Um, I didn't want to be. I couldn't say yes, if I didn't mean it. You know, right. so mm -hmm. when the whole slave right. issue and whatnot came up, I didn't agree with it at, at all. Um, I was very much against, I knew what he was trying to convey, but um, in some ways I found it offensive. You know, it's like Prince, slaves didn't get paid. You know, they suffered and that's not really where you're at. I understand your frustration, but that's just not what this is. Being happy, but I just didn't feel comfortable with that message being out there. Um, and you know, as he wanted to go in, in different directions, they weren't the directions I wanted to go. And I didn't want to be complicit. I didn't want to 
you know, say, well, he made me do it. I didn't, I didn't want to be that guy that said he made me do it and then come in with the bill. Right. You know, I, I just, I couldn't do it. I had a responsibility to the, to the staff. We had a wonderful staff at Paisley. You know, there was a lot of sacrifice for everyone that, that worked in that environment. And I also felt he needed to understand that again, Paisley was its own, its own entity. And he had a responsibility to that. Yeah. Well, that's what so, he wanted it anyways. Cause well, right. yeah, but you have to, you created it. Like I said, if you create that business, you have to be there. And he was right. there and I was fine with taking the responsibility of running it, but you couldn't just do whatever you wanted to do out of it. You couldn't abuse it. You yeah. know, you couldn't shut down studios because you just don't want anyone in the studios when you need a business as part of the business model. You can't shut down the soundstage, you know, because you just don't want anyone else to use the soundstage. You can't not go on tour when touring was part of the business model that we needed to run. You know, you, you just, these are things that we had put in place a pretty good foundation for him to continue to build what he wanted to build. That $100 million deal was worth more than a hundred million. I, I know there's people out there who oh, never really was. No, it was. And he had the support of Warners. Warners was trying to give him those things that he needed. You know, part of that deal was $30 million of funding for Paisley Park Records. And it it was going to allow him to, yeah. So it, it the, the that 30 million was going to allow us to actually hire a staff of you know, record people that were totally somewhat independent of, of Paisley, but they were still answering to, to me and to, to Paisley. They were part of the Paisley group, but they were going to work hand in hand with Warners to produce artists. We signed George Clinton. We had Mavis Staples, you know, TC Ellis, um, uh, Tevin Campbell. All that was through that deal. And it was being funded by Warners through the, the record deal that we put together. Um, but, you know, he wasn't happy with that. And it, and it was kind of like, I, I didn't want, I just, if I cared for him in the way that I felt personally, then I wasn't going to become a yes man. And if That's... there's one thing about my position with him, I never was that person. I wasn't going to become that person. And, um, you know, it was just time. It was time for me to leave. He wasn't happy about the fact that I left, but we lived right down the road from each other. And it's like, you know, if you ever need me, just call me. I'll, I'll be there. Right. And like you said, I, you left him in good hands. You're right. I thought he was in good hands. I, I thought exactly. from a personal standpoint, she was definitely something that was going to help him to become the right. man he needed to be. I think well, one of the hardest things is for an artist to separate um, that creative side and that and the business side. And yes. so when you're that, when you're that person and you're, you're going to have that battle. So it's, it's an amazing thing to have had you for all that time to save him from himself is really the only <laughs> way you. we could put it. So Thank, yeah. I appreciate that. And yeah, and, and you know, there's a certain marriage that has to take place uh, with, with creatives and in business. Right. One does not work without the other, you know, exactly. it's a symbiotic relationship. There's gotta be the balance in that to make it work and that's when it works um and you know in a lot of ways on the business side he just at the time he just didn't he wasn't really attuned to that that's what was in his way and you know so uh when was the last i only have a, a, a two more questions and then um 
kind of want to talk about what you're doing now so that people can know how they can help and contribute to uh, your future now. When was the last time that you spoke with Prince and, and what did you guys talk about? So after I left, um, you know, we had deep conversations about the fact that I was going to leave. I was trying to actually, when I had announced my resignation, I was going to leave at the end of the year. Um, so I was trying to find my replacement. Um, I don't think any of that he was really comfortable with or reacted to very well. And then some of the things he started doing were actually against what I was trying to do for him. Um, so I moved that date up and uh, left earlier and then left earlier than that early was going to be. And so with that said, we never had, you know, uh, a blowout, drag out argument fight. You know, I, I never wanted to feel disrespected by him and I would never disrespect him. It was Prince's show. And at the end of the day, he could do, you know, whatever he wanted with it. Um, I loved him, you know, and by me leaving in the way that I did, I felt it was the, you know, I wished him the best, like, you know, going forward, I felt he was going to be fine. And, you know, he would continue to do Prince. Um, he did call a few times after I left. I just wasn't in the headspace of wanting to take the call at the time. And uh, and so our last conversation was that summer that, that I, I left. At the same time, you know, um, with my relationship with Sheila or anything like that, uh, if there was a, a need or something like that, he could have easily reached out to her. But he went on and he continued to do what he did and, you know, Super Bowl and releasing these records and whatnot. And, you found that where he was a lot of times, it was the music. I mean, everything was kind of focused on what that next project was and what the music was. And if you didn't have a role in that, then what role did you have? And so I think with a lot of the relationships that Prince has or had, um, it wasn't about whether he liked a person or didn't like a person or had a fight with this person or some, it was just, you didn't have a role to play in that next thing that he was doing. And he was, that's where his focus was on. So um, we didn't have any crosswords upon me leaving. Um, I was a fan when I left. I was a fan when he passed away. I was terribly distraught like we all were when he passed. Um, and where I wish things you? would have turned out different. Where were you when you heard? I was in Los Angeles. And uh, so I got the call from, from Sheila um, that that he had passed. And well, actually the call was somebody was found in Paisley. You know, immediately you hope that it wasn't him. Immediately you hope that it wasn't something that he was associated with if it wasn't him. And then she called and she said it was him. And uh, so we offered to come um, to Paisley which was accepted. And so her and I flew in from Los Angeles. And so I was there that evening and found him that morning and I got there that evening, um, which was surreal. I mean, I hadn't stepped into the building since 94, 95. And now here I am, you know, back there. And uh, it was, it was, it was difficult, but, um, you know, the tragedy happened in the way that it happened and 
there wasn't the structure necessary to navigate what happened. And um, in some ways, I found myself back in that position of helping or being responsible for how this was going to be handled. And so I handled it, you know, for my friend as best as I could or as, as the opportunity um, presented itself. And I did it for no more reason than uh, out of respect for what he deserved. And, and I felt at the end of the day, the world lit up purple. It did. Right. I think we absolutely there's not a person in here that that doesn't miss him and his and that was good everything. yeah I, I, he's you know all right so last question um but i think i can't hear you chris if you're talking can you hear me uh i can hear we you can hear you yes yeah i, I we, we 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 can hear you i can hear you okay um i see your mouth moving but yeah, i can't okay. uh, I don't know what happened here uh-oh yeah let's see let me see if i uh Ooh, you're back there we All go. Right. All okay. right. All right. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so this is the last question, and mm -hmm. then I'm going to talk about uh, what you're doing right now. We're going to talk about the artist management and Sheila and uh, love for one another. But one of the questions, the last question I had for you is that a lot of people don't know this, uh, but you also um, you also manage Taika. Mm -hmm. Or not manage Taika. You work with Taika. Uh, or you are in management capacity. I'm not sure. Um, but I, I call it business management. Uh, you know, it's kind of what I do overall. It's just uh, navigating through whatever. Uh, and, and I know that there's, yeah. So there's been a lot of uh, what I consider kind of unfair perception about her involvement with Prince's legacy. And um, I, I kind of felt like this was a perfect opportunity for you to kind of clear that up as far as Taika's involvement with, with Prince's legacy and what's all going on. Because I know that, uh, just with everything that's been going, was going on with primary wave and, and all the, you know, the rights and stuff being, you know, uh, I, I'm just hoping that you can kind of give uh, folks a little bit of clarity and just kind of, um, you know. Sure. So, um, contrary to popular belief, Taika has, has not abandoned, uh, her responsibility for Prince's legacy. Um, you know, as, as we all know, things were not left in the ideal position to, to be managed. And, uh, you know, I give her credit, you know, she recognized that and, and she knew that a structure needed to be put in place to make sure that his legacy is upheld and continued, you know, to the best of her ability um, and to the best that the situation lend itself to. So Taika is actually part of the primary wave team. Um, she is the consultant her and her and prince's nephew her son president they are the representatives for primary wave for the paisley park estate so you know as things I'm are excited about just, yeah. just so we're clear jeff and jeff page and i have talked about this a lot because a i know lot. a lot of negativity has has been thrown towards primary wave like oh now what's going to happen and and i we we have come to consensus and we kind of enlighten people a little bit it's like do you do realize that by the nature of business, <laughs> primary wave's primary objective is to obviously be able to make money, but they also want to be able to solidify Prince's legacy. Yes, so all right. those things that you guys want, all those 
all those unreleased albums, all those things that you guys have been screaming for, you're going to get it. It's going <laughs> to happen. Because if, 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 it, if, if, if that, if that part didn't happen, who knows what this, you know, what the distribution. Well, you know, I, I think people have to realize, you know, in his passing and, and like I said, the, the chaos and, you know, how everything was unsettled, but you, you look and you realize what are the assets that were actually left behind. These are very highly specialized assets. This yes. isn't just a house or, you know, a car, or, Hey, he left some cash. He left music, you know, and, in order, it, particularly in, in, in current day environment and whatnot, what or do you do? Yeah, <laughs> or a Rolex watch. What do you do? What do you do with all this, these assets? And you need to have someone that has the acumen and intelligence and structure in order to not just cultivate it, but to make sure that it is handled appropriately. And, uh, you know, I found that primary wave was a, a prime candidate to do that that is their interest um, to uphold the legacy of Prince um, and working with Taika, they needed to make sure, and they wanted to make sure that, you know, she stayed involved in, in whatnot. So that that's part of it. Taika hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, and furthermore, um, she isn't directly involved with the love for one another charity that Prince and Maite started uh, back in 1998. That's uh, been revived. And so Taika is a key member on the board on that. So she's, you know, helping to influence and uh, pay attention to the philanthropic efforts that uh, Prince had put forward. So Taika's still, Taika's still there. And since we're talking about that, um, mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about you are the director of the Love for One Another Charities right now. And yes. for those interested, it is L4, the number four, OA.org. So tell people a little bit about how they can uh, contribute to the love for one another charity and exactly what that entails and what your what your mission statement and purpose is. So we're, we are love for one another charities, um, and so you can go to l4a.org and you'll you'll find our information there in the board and whatnot. Um, like most people, I mean, with most things, COVID really threw us for a loop. During COVID, uh, we ran some different programs. We had a hundred dollar day giveaway and things like that, and trying to provide support uh, to people in need. And, and that's our mission. Our, our mission is helping people up and helping people out. And we're having this conversation on what was Prince doing, you know, because the, the, the his philanthropic efforts weren't um, normal. <laughs> Some people would say he would just give right. the money and here you go. I asked my taste, how did you guys, you know, how did you start finding, you know, who to give to? She said, he'd just go online and go, oh, let's help that person. And, you know, off he goes. And he would do that. Um, so, Again, putting more structure behind the charity. Um, we're going to ramp everything back up um, at the beginning of, of 2023 um, with COVID being over and, and doing more outreach, playing, uh, paying attention towards uh, programs, music programs, dance programs, arts programs, science, and all those things that he was participating in. So, you know, you're, you're going to be seeing a lot with love for one another come 2023. Well, I'm I'm obviously very very excited about that. Um, I think it's uh, I'm I'm glad that the you know philanthropic efforts that he's done are, are still yeah. are still moving forward. Um, and uh, I know outside of that, you're you're also doing um, management as well. You're still uh, work. You're working with Sheila E. Uh, you're obviously working with your son uh, Michael, doing kind of artist management and business management. Um, can you tell a little bit? 
people about the company that you're you're working with now and uh, so it's my own it's my own company uh, uh via legacy and via actually stands for uh vision into action um kind of came up with that i thought it was catchy i like via <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so you know basically what i do it, again i i like to build platforms for people to move towards their goals um so whether it's in music or you know um or not uh, jeff katz is also a client of mine um the photographer jeff everyone knows yes. jeff wow. uh, you know yeah. working with that and, and doing those kind of things um some projects in film and television as well so it's not just you know in, in music um, I know that I've been very fortunate in, in my career. Um, and, you know, now I'm in a place of kind of, I don't know, say picking and choosing what I do or what I don't do. But it's really about sharing my experience and knowledge with, with people um, and, and helping them to, you know, reach their goals and, and things like that. So um, I have a lot of people to thank for, you know, what I've experienced and obviously Prince is one of them. Sheila's another. Um, you know, I've had I've been fortunate enough to uh gain experience and work with, you know, two of the top talents of of our generation, really. Uh, you know, and 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 so I'm excited. You know, Michael definitely gives me uh an outlet to to continue on this journey and I'm excited for him and I'm proud of him and you know and uh so yeah, so there's just a lot of different things that, you know, kind of come in my way. And it's like, yeah, if you do this and you do that, and you tweak this, you tweak this there, that might work, you know? So when Chris, when you release your record, Jeff, when you do yours, just give me a call and let's, you know, let's figure out what we can, what we can do. Yeah. The first call we the call will be made for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can't, uh, again, I can't, uh, tell you how much of an honor it was to have you on board and also uh, more than anything for being so accommodating <laughs> for being on so long. Oh, uh, thank you. I don't know if you, I, I, I must've properly prepped you that <laughs> you're going to be here for a minute. <laughs> but, uh, thank you guys. Uh, thank you so much for, um, for coming on and such phenomenal, phenomenal stories. I, I mean, you, you unveiled stories and, and, tidbits that i've never heard before no. and uh i i think i've probably read every prince book out there including my taste and sheila's and everybody else it's <laughs> unbelievable uh gilbert thank you oh I, I did have one like floating question and it's gonna bother me uh uh glam get slam. it out yeah get it out just go ahead oh, throw it out there the glam slam the 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 name of the club was the song done first or what did he write the song to no then no the name clan slam the song all that was him i to this day i don't know what it meant i i don't <laughs> I, it was funny so we were on tour and, and he came in the room and like i said it was kind of like you know what's mine is yours what's yours is mine kind of thing so i'm doing this club and the club was under my company's name which was heaven and earth right and uh he walks into my room and I think I'm sitting in there with some of the other guys, the security guys. And he says, this heaven and earth thing, you know, I, we're not naming the club heaven and earth. And he's really upset. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, no, heaven and earth, the name of the company that the club is going to be under the name is glam slam. And he, his face just drops and he looks at me. Oh, and he walks back out the room. And I just thought, <laughs> you know, 
it was it was it was kind of it was kind of funny um but no glam slam that name was his um i probably wouldn't have named it that but uh you know if it helped him to get his point across i was fine with it, it, it you know it worked oh well awesome you but know, i did know. i did change it for a reason at the same time it's like you know yeah i i, I do like quest and just to be clear we actually did have a uh a club here in atlanta which you're probably familiar with uh the tabernacle which actually had three levels heaven hell mm -hmm. and purgatory heaven actually featured like well-known acts um you know some of the, the headlining acts would play up there uh hell was more for like techno bands and like harder edged bands and purgatory was like uh, it was like acoustic and things like that. It was like this really, it was, right. it was really strange. It was a phenomenal club. I've seen, I saw some amazing concerts there, but uh, Heaven and Earth wouldn't have been a bad name for a club, just so we're clear. Okay, so. no, yeah. <laughs> somebody know, asked you know, me, somebody asked me, that, would you, are you going to open up another club in, in Minneapolis? And I was like, I wouldn't open up a can of soda in, in downtown Minneapolis. <laughs> That's not yeah, to say it's not a great place. It's not a great city, but right. you have to deal with you know the city officials and whatnot. And you know, I'm I'm definitely pro business. It's a lot of work. It's kind of like, hey guys, you know, come on, come alongside the businesses here and make it work. But sometimes it seems like they do things to you make know it as I, difficult like as possible. To, I'd like to do, um, Chris. I think this would be the most awesome thing if um, Mr. Gilbert Davison, if you would be willing to do a bumper for us. Oh, absolutely. The radio, the radio oh, yeah. show. It's a fantastic idea. Let's yeah. So, uh, as you know, we have an ASCAP licensed radio station. And uh, so, yeah, uh, just say this is Gilbert Davison, and you're listening to Funkatopia Radio. You can add your little spin on it or whatever. But yeah, we'll use it for sure. If you're not asking me to dance, are we ready? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. This is Gilbert Davison, and you're listening to Funkatopia Radio. Perfect. So Thank yes. you, Jeff Page, for remembering that. <laughs> I'm so enamored with this man. I mean, I, no. I literally have spent like, like decades watching this man keep crawling across credits, and I'm like, one day I'm going to meet this man. I'm well, I, I hope that only, I hope that only. that that holds. Now that we've had this conversation, oh whatnot, my gosh, so it was phenomenal. This is thank you. Been this an unbelievable amazing. night, Gilbert. Night. Thank you I so so much. Obviously, you know, we'll be in touch and uh, send our love to Sheila, send our love to Maite and Taika and all them. Uh, absolutely. Just send our love in like bucket loads. Thank you, guys. Right. I appreciate absolutely. it. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. So Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> all right, everyone. Uh, what? Wow. wow.